Ghouls, and welcome to Frightening Tales. I'm your host, Justin, the Ghoul Man, Red Man, president of the K-Ghoul Horror Film Club and investigator for Burgers. I'm joined by the man with the 12th degree black belt and Pew Jitsu, Master Flamethrower, and he too is a Burgers investigator, Tommy Pew Pew. Tonight's episode is Horror 101, so it is brought to you by the K-Ghoul Horror Film Club. Before we move on, let me explain what the Horror Film Club is all about. It's a bunch of us horror-loving people who get together, we watch movies, we talk about our favorite horror movies. We might have a shot or two, a drink or two, some uh, cigars, whatever, but generally we get together, we have a good old-fashioned discussion about horror movies, we share stories, we do all kinds of things. And if you would like to join the K-Ghoul Horror Film Club, we do have a Discord channel, I'll provide the link in the description, so uh, just look forward to that. Why Horror 101? Well, as I started this whole adventure into Dracula, I've noticed a few people I talked with have a very, uh, their understanding of pop culture horror and lines was uh, a little lacking. So we're going to give you just kind of a very broad view. I'm not going to cover a whole lot of stuff on this. It's just a little taste and it's mostly what makes me like horror. It's not necessarily why everybody else likes horror. And what version there, I'm not going to try to tell you this is the best genre of horror or that's not horror, nothing like that. Basically, if it scares you, there's a little bit of a horror element in it, and then you go into, you know, full-blown horror movies. So before we get into um, into the discussion, let, let's shine a little light on what our favorite horror movies are. Now, quite a few of mine we're going to talk throughout this uh, episode of Frightening Ghouls, so we're going to focus a little bit more on Tommy's. Yeah, that's right. So my favorite horror film of all time is Big Trouble in Little China. Okay, um, I, I, I see where the horror element's at. Yeah, you got that floating eye, that big giant head with the eye, the beholder. Yeah, that's right, fantasy boy. The Beholder. And you have that big giant monster that kidnaps Kim Cattrall. And then, of course, you can't forget Lopan and his three minions there. Mr. I'ma blow myself up, literally. Fill my body full of air until I blow up. I'ma hold my breath. And then you just, you just see him just start fattening up, and then boom! But, of course, I like Jack Burton. That's how I became a bit of a man of action myself, that Jack Burton fella. When he caught that knife midair and then threw it right back at Lopan, and then he just said, it's all in the reflexes, baby. Have mercy. I like that. That was pretty cool. Yes, I like Big Trouble in Little China, too. Um, not necessarily on my list of top fives, but uh, I, I, I like that. Uh, see, we're really branching out into what, what we consider a horror. And we, we like a little bit of comedy in our horror, as you're going to find out. Uh, I do like a good scare, as in like the evil dead rise. I, I was pleasantly surprised with that when I watched it a few weeks ago, a review coming much, much later. But I was glad to see something that was actually scary for a while. So we do like to mix it up. But you will find that most of our stuff are, are is a bit more uh, dark comedy. So what's next on your list, Tommy? Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Now there's something about it that I, I just really like. You got two 
two hillbillies out there trying to just fix their cabin. And this group of frat kids and college girls, and they're out in their woods, and all these weird accidents happen to them, and it makes it look like Tucker and Dale are out there killing. And you got that one psycho frat boy who absolutely hates hillbillies and then discovers... Oh, wait, I can't give you that one. <laughs> Spoiler alert, he discovers he's a hillbilly himself. And boy, does he really hate life after that. But Tucker and Dale, that was one of the best uh, kind of the current movies that's out there that I really, really like. It's funny. It, it's not really, um, you're not going to find like a creature feature or some other crazy. Uh, you, you just got the one uh, frat boy who kind of goes psycho and... Well, yeah, he's the evil. I watched that one. Uh, Firefly fans like myself pretty much love anything that Alan Tudyk is in. Uh, he was great in uh, the one Transformers movie. Uh, he's even voiced the chicken in Moana. Uh, so anything Alan Tudyk, a.k.a. Wash, is in, I'm a leaf on the wind. I'm probably going to like not going to go seek it out and watch it, but if I just happen to notice that he's in it, it's kind of a deciding factor of, okay, I'm, I'll give this one a try. My third favorite movie so far is The Scout's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse. Oh, man, that is one of the funniest horror movies I've ever seen. Oh, man, the, the zombie breakout is great. When, when you get to Patient Zero, it is hilarious. Oh, I know, that janitor sitting there dancing around while cleaning up, not paying attention to the scientist that left, and then he sits there and notices the dead body, uh, or lo it looks like that he's alive, and he's trying to save him, and the, throwing the tic-tac in so he can, uh, he, he, he can do CPR. That was hilarious, and there's patient zero. There's just so much about this movie that is hilarious. Um, when it, when you rank in comedy zombie movies, I used to think Shaun of the Dead was the top one for zombie comedies. Zombie or the Scout's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse topped that one. The chemistry between the characters are better. You feel bad for for one of them. Uh, it just it's just overall best comedy ever. I mean, there, there's some real crude scenes in this, but, um, it's well done. I had a good kick. I got a good kick out of it. My wife li likes it. it. It's just overall scouts guide to the zombie apocalypse. And then of course we got another one of my favorite characters of all time. Zombieland in Tallahassee. Oh, I, you know, that Tallahassee dude, he's pretty, he's pretty nimble. He's pretty good with a gun. And boy, he's got a great little backstory. But Zombieland on a whole was just another one of those great comedy movies. And, and it was with zombies, it just happened to have zombies. Uh, best scene, though, was the whole scene with Bill Murray. <laughs> yeah, that was one scared little rabbit. <laughs> See, I liked Zombieland, um... This is one of the few movies I've saw in the theater. And uh, we decided to do this one Halloween because we had no trick-or-treaters that year. We were living in a different house than we are now. And the movie we'd got was Let the Right One In. It was the Swedish version. And we were just bored 
and we decided, hey, the last second, let's go watch a movie. So we go watch Zombieland in the theater in the scene where old boy is in the bathroom and that clown popped up underneath the, uh, the stall and the girls in the back screamed really loud. I knew I was in for a great treat that this was going to be one of the best movies at the theater. And I, I just loved, it. I love the characters, uh, finding the guns and the Humvee is hilarious. Zombieland 2, Double Tap, eh, it was not, it didn't have the charm as the first one, but it was still there. So the Zombieland franchise is definitely worth checking out. Yeah, your only scene I liked in uh, Double Tap was when Tallahassee was saying, yeah, I think you're going to die, but uh, it's okay. It's for a good cause. That was probably the best scene in that one. And then now my final movie that I really like, Predator. Ah, there we go. We blend in a little action, a little bit of horror there together. Big scary alien that's invisible. has got all these high-tech weapons tracking down an elite special forces team sent to recover uh, some hostages and some other stuff, but they were tricked into going. Yeah, this one's great. Uh, the Especially when Arnold figures out how to hide himself from the infrared vision. That's pretty cool. And of course, every there, there's a bunch of great one-liners in there. Knock, knock. Stick around. Or get to the chopper. That was, you know, Predator is one of those great movies. I like Predator too. I like the little twist there that they've been on Earth for quite a while. And that um, when Danny Glover's character finds out and it beats him, becomes like an honorary member. That was pretty cool. So that rounds out Tommy's top five horror movies or his favorite five horror movies, however you want to put it. So most of mine, we will talk throughout the episode. So I'm going to just give you a quick rundown of mine. Number one is Trick or Treat. Two, Ghostbusters. Three, Monster Squad. Four, Cat's Eyes. And five, Cabin in the Woods. Oh, I love Cabin in the Woods. Especially when they're taking, when they got that pool on which monster will be released. That is hilarious. Great thinking on Joss Whedon to do that. A way to take a nice scary movie and add a few little elements of comedy and then some horror tropes into it. Let's talk about tonight's entertainment. So I've got a great night lined up for you. We're finally going to finish Dracula. We've got uh, about an hour left of Dracula, so that's pretty cool. So you want to stick around and catch these uh, last moments of it, and we conclude the story. And then I have a very special treat for you. A couple days ago, friend and I were talking about books and what books we read as a child. And I talked about uh, how I discovered the three investigators at my junior high library. And he was, oh, man, that is so awesome. I love those books, too. Well, while working on this episode, I discovered that I, by chance, have an audio version of The Three Investigators. In fact, I have two episodes. It seems like these are the only two they ever did. Somewhere in 1984, someone decided to put the first book, The Secret of Terror Castle, onto an audio cassette. They dramatized the book, so it's not an audio book. It's not somebody reading to you. And yet it was lost, hidden, and somehow or another, I got my hands on the copy of it. So I'm going to have that as our part of our double feature for tonight. So let's go ahead and start Dracula. When we come back, we're going to talk about creature features and the universal monsters.
Episode 13, Blood of My Blood. Dr. Van Helsing has begun the effort to find and destroy Count Dracula. But Van Helsing and the others do not yet comprehend the complete evil intent of the Nosferatu. Dr. Seward's Diary, 3 October, 1897. Let me put down with exactness all that has happened, as well as I can remember it since last I made an entry. Not a detail that I can recall must be forgotten. In all calmness I must proceed. When I came to Renfield's room, I found him lying on the floor on his left side in a glittering pool of blood. It was at once apparent that he had received some terrible injuries. As the face was exposed, I could see that it was horribly bruised, as though it had been beaten against the floor. Indeed, it was from the face wounds that the pool of blood originated. I directed the attendant to bring Van Helsing at once. The man ran off, and within a few minutes, the professor appeared. When he saw Renfield on the ground, he looked keenly at him a moment, and then turned to me. I think he recognized my thought in my eyes, for he said very quietly, manifestly for the ears of the attendant. Ah, a sad accident. You will need very careful watching and much attention. I shall stay with you myself, but I shall first dress myself. If you will remain, I shall in a few minutes join you. With this, Van Helsing made his way from the room. I sent the attendant away, knowing that we would want privacy if and when Renfield regained consciousness. In a short time, Van Helsing returned, bearing with him a surgical case. We went into a strict examination of the patient. The wounds of the face were superficial. The real injury was a depressed fracture of the skull, extending right up through the motor area. We must reduce the pressure and get back to normal conditions as far as can be. The rapidity of the suffusion shows the terrible nature of his injury. The whole motor area seems affected. The suffusion of the brain is increasing, Doctor. We must operate at once or it may be too late. Patience. Patience. We shall wait just long enough to fix the best spot for trephining, so that we may most quickly and perfectly remove the blood clot. The minutes during which we waited passed with fearful slowness. I had a horrible sinking in my heart, and from Van Helsing's face I gathered that he felt some fear or apprehension as to what was to come. I dreaded the words that Renfield might speak. I was positively afraid to think but the conviction of what was coming was upon me. At last, there came a time when it was evident that the patient was sinking fast. He might die at any moment. I looked up at the professor and caught his eyes fixed on mine. His face was sternly set. There is no time to lose. His words may be worth many lives. We shall operate just above moments and then it softened into a glad surprise and from the lips came a sigh of relief. He moved convulsively and as he did so said, Why, Dr. Seward, I, I have had a terrible dream. What's wrong with my face? It feels all swollen and it smarts dreadfully. Gently, Mr. 
Mr. Renfield, you've had an accident. Try not to move. Tell us your dream, Mr. Renfield. That is Dr. Van Helsing. How good it is of you to be here. Some water, please. My lips are dry. I dream... No, no. Rest a moment. We moistened the parched lips, and the patient quickly revived. It seemed, however, that his poor, injured brain had been working in the interval, for when he was quite conscious, he looked at me pensively with an agonized confusion which I shall never forget. I must not deceive myself. It was no dream, but all a grim reality. Quick, doctor, quick. I am dying. I feel that I have but a few minutes, and then I must go back to death. Or worse, I have something that I must say before I die. It was that night after you left me when I implored you to let me go away. I couldn't speak then, for I felt my tongue was tied. I was in an agony of despair for a long time after you left me. It seemed hours. Then there came a sudden peace to me. My brain seemed to become cool again, and I realized where I was. I heard the dogs bark behind our house, but not where he was. As he spoke, Van Helsing's eyes never blinked, but his hand came out and met mine and gripped it hard. He did not, however, betray himself, only nodding slightly and saying, Go on. He came up to the window in the mist, as I had seen him often before, but he was solid, not a ghost, and his eyes were fierce with anger. He was laughing with his red mouth, the sharp white teeth glinted in the moonlight when he turned to look back over the belt of trees to where the dogs were barking. I wouldn't ask him to come in at first, though I knew he wanted to, just as he had wanted all along. Then he began promising me things, not in words, but by doing them. How do you mean? By making them happen, just as he used to send in the flies when the sun was shining. Great big fat ones with steel and sapphire on their wings, and big moths in the night with skull and crossbones on their backs. The death's head moth. Then he began to whisper. Dog 
the dark trees in his house. Come to the window. I got up and looked out, and he raised his hands, seemed to call out without using any words. A dark mass spread over the grass, coming on like the shape of a flame of fire. Into me. 
before me and a noise like thunder and the mist seemed to steal away under the door. I... I... We know the worst now. He is here and we know his purpose. It may not be too late. Go. Wake Arthur and Quincy. Let us be armed with the crucifix, sacred host, and holy water. The same as we were the other night. But lose no time. There is not an instant to spare. I hurried to follow Van Helsing's orders, and soon we all met in the corridor outside the Harker's bedroom. Alas, alas, that that dear Madamina should suffer. Should we disturb her? We must. If the door be locked, I shall break it in. But it will frighten her terribly. I say it is unusual to break into a lady's room. You are always right, but this is life and death. All chambers are alike to the doctor. It is locked. John, you will put your shoulder down and shove. And you too, my friends. stream of blood. 
Her eyes were mad with terror. My God. My God. Van Helsing stepped forward and drew the coverlet gently over her body. Come to me, my child. Seward, come here. Jonathan is in a stupor such as we know the vampire can produce. We can do nothing with poor Madame Mina for a few moments till she recovers herself. I must wake him. He dipped the end of a towel in cold water and with it began to flick him on the face, his wife all the while holding her face between her hands and sobbing in a way that was heartbreaking to hear. I raised the blind and looked out of the window. There was much moonshine, and as I looked I could see Quincy Morris run across the lawn and hide himself in the shadow of a great yew tree. It puzzled me to think why he was doing this, but at the instant I heard Harker wake to consciousness. What has happened? Oh, Jonathan. In God's name, what does this mean? Dr. Seward, Dr. Van Helsing, what is it? What's wrong? Mina. Dear Mina, what is it? What does that blood mean? Oh, my God, has it come to this? Dr. Van Helsing, do something to save her. It could not have gone too far. Guard her while I look for him. No. No, Jonathan. You must not leave me. I have suffered enough tonight without the dread of his harming you. You must stay with me. Stay with these friends who will watch over you. The professor held up his little golden crucifix and said with wonderful calmness, Do not fear, my dear. We are here. And whilst this is close to you, no foul thing can approach. You are safe for tonight, and we must be calm and take counsel together. Mina shuddered and was silent, holding down her head on her husband's breast. When she raised it, his white nightrobe was stained with blood where her lips had touched, and where the thin opened wound in her neck sent forth drops. The instant she saw it, she drew back with a low wail and whispered in its choking sobs. I am unclean. Jonathan, I must touch you no more. Oh, that it should be I who am now your worst enemy, and I who you have most cause to fear. Nonsense, Mina. It is a shame to me to hear such words. I would not hear it of you, and I shall not hear it from you. May God judge me and punish me with more bitter suffering than even this hour, if by any act or will of mine, anything ever come between us. He put out his arms and folded her to his breast, and for a while she lay there sobbing. He looked at us over her bowed head, with eyes that blinked damply above his quivering nostrils. His mouth was set as steel. Just then, Quincy and Godalming came into the room. I could not see him anywhere in the passage or in any of our rooms. I looked in the study, but though he had been there, he had gone. He had, however, made rare hay of the place. All the manuscript had been burned. The cylinders of your phonograph, too, were thrown in the fire. There is another copy in the safe. I ran downstairs then, 
but could see no sign of him. I looked into Renfield's room, but there was no trace there except... Go on. Except that the poor fellow is dead. God's will be done. For a space of perhaps a couple of minutes, there was silence, and I could fancy that I could hear the sound of our hearts beating. And then Van Helsing said, very tenderly, And now, Madame Mina, poor, dear, dear Madame Mina, tell us exactly what happened. God knows that I do not want that you be pained, but it is need that we know all. For now, more than ever has all work to be done quick and sharp and in deadly earnest. Mina shivered, and I could see the tension of her nerves as she clasped her husband closer to her and rested her head upon his breast as she spoke. I took the sleeping draft, which you had so kindly given me, but for a long time it did not act. I seemed to become more wakeful, and myriads of horrible fancies began to crowd in upon my mind, all of them connected with death and vampires, with blood and pain and trouble. There was in the room a thin white mist. I felt a vague terror come to me and turned to wake Jonathan. I tried, but I could not wake him. This caused me a great fear, and I looked around, terrified. Then, indeed, my heart sank within me. Beside the bed, as if he had stepped out of the mist, or rather, as if the mist had turned into this figure, stood a tall, thin man, all in black. him at once from the description of the others. The waxen face, the high aquiline nose on which the light fell in a thin white line, the parted red lips with the sharp white teeth showing between them, and the red eyes that I had seemed to see in the sunset on the windows of St. Mary's Church at Whitby. I knew, too, the red scar on his forehead where Jonathan had struck him. For an instant, my heart stood still, and I would have screamed out, only that I was paralyzed. In the pause, he spoke in a sort of keen, cutting whisper, pointing as he spoke to Jonathan. It's not the first time. 
to me. He placed his reeking lips upon my throat. I felt my strength fading away, and I was in a swoon. How long this horrible thing lasted, I know not. But it seemed that a long time must have passed before he took his foul, awful, sneering mouth away. I saw it drip with the fresh blood. The remembrance seemed for a while to overpower her, and she drooped and would have sunk down but for her husband's sustaining arm. With a great effort, she recovered herself and went on. Then he spoke to me, mockingly. And so you, like the others, would play your brains against mine. You would help these men to hunt me and frustrate me in my designs. They should have kept their energies for use closer to home. open his shirt, and with his long, sharp nails, opened a vein in his breast. When the blood began to spurt out, he took my hands in one of his, holding them tight, and with the other, seized my neck, and pressed my mouth to the wound, so that I must either suffocate or swallow some of the deserve such a fate. May God pity me. As she was telling her terrible story, the eastern sky began to quicken, and everything became more and more clear. Parker was still and quiet, but over his face as the awful narrative went on came a grey look, which deepened and deepened in the morning light when the first streak of the coming dawn came through the window. The flesh stuck darkly out against the whitening hair. Of this I am sure. The sun rises today on no more miserable house in all the great ground of its daily course. simple really all you have to do is remember the basic rules of monsterdom vampires sup werewolves hunt ghouls tear welcome back to frightening tales tonight it is horror 101 we are talking all about the horror movies that we like and the movies that got us hooked on horror not everyone has the same pathway to liking horror movies uh most people claim that the universal monsters were their gateway to horror movies we're talking Bride of Frankenstein, Frankenstein, Dracula, the Wolfman, the Mummy, the Invisible Man, um, the Creature from the Black Lagoon, all of those are their gateways into horror movies. Mostly because these movies were wrapped up into these uh, packages called like the House of Shock, which the horror hosts used as their uh, movies. They were licensed to the uh, television station so they can use these movies to continue and to preserve 
these great classics. Now, you've heard me say before, I'm not an overly huge fan of the classics. I respect where they are and what they do. Um, my gateway to horror was Critters and Aliens and some of the other movies that we will talk a little bit later on. But I can't have this conversation without talking about the Universal Monsters first. It's going to be mostly how I rank which one you should see. If you really want to go watch the horror or the Universal classics, I say The Creature from the Black Lagoon is by far the best of the classics that you should watch. I don't know what it is about it that I like better. Maybe it's better storytelling techniques because this one was done in the 50s versus the others that were done in the 30s. So there's a little bit more of a score. There's a little bit more of uh, action in it. it. It just, I guess it's pacing the storytelling. And then number two on that, I would say watch Bride of Frankenstein. Now, I can give you an alternative to watching Bride of Frankenstein that everybody would love, and that's Young Frankenstein by Mel Brooks. This is almost scene by scene as Bride of Frankenstein, because as I watched Bride, I went, man, this seems awfully familiar. But Bride of Frankenstein has a little bit better story development in there, and we work in uh, the whole why Dr. Frankenstein eventually breaks down and makes the bride. And Boris Karloff still is the best Frankenstein. I cannot tell you any other Frankenstein off the top of my head because when I hear Frankenstein or whenever we see Frankenstein, it's Boris Karloff. If you want a number two, it's going to be Herman Munster. Number three for the Universal Creatures is going to be Wolfman for me. This one is more of a little biased choice because I am partial to werewolves, so it's got to be a little higher than some of the other movies. Uh, Dracula comes in at number four. Bella Lugosi does make a good Dracula, but we've seen better. There's been like 160 actors to play Dracula, and I've talked a whole lot more on this. But Dracula is still a uh, still kind of boring, and it's got its moments though. But like I said, if you want to watch the classics, this is the order I would watch them in. Number four is going to be Frankenstein. It has the same problem as Dracula. There's like no music to it, no score. So it's really hard to build up tension or surprise. And once you've seen it once, the replayability for it kind of uh, dwindles. And then rounding out number six is The Mummy. This is another Boris Karloff where he plays the mummy, Emotep. And... Uh, this one I hadn't seen up until last Halloween when they put this back up on the big screen. And I really was reluctant to go see it, but I'm glad I did. Because seeing a classic on the big screen is just pretty awesome and pretty fun. Uh, it was a double feature with Bride of Frankenstein. So I got to see both of those on the big screen. And if any of the other Universal Classics hit the screen this year for Halloween, I will uh, go see them. I mean, I, I may talk bad about them, but I still like them. I'll go see them. So what is it about a creature feature that I really like? I've seen a debate go across social media lately that says creature features are not horror. What are you smoking is the response that I've seen. Creature features are indeed horror movies. They're scary. They play on our fears. Somebody's like, well, what's so scared about Jaws? Do you like going in the water? No, I don't want to get eaten by a shark. Boom. Thank you, Jaws. That's why Jaws is scary. It's why Deep Blue Sea is scary. So other creature features that really got me hooked, and this was because of the horror hosts like Morgus the Magnificent, Elvira, and Sven Gulli. 
more Morgus the Magnificent because he was our local horror host. And I got to watch Night of the Lepus, which is a movie about giant rabbits that are terrorizing the countryside. Which is a pretty cool movie. You, know, you wouldn't expect rabbits to be that uh, being that feral. It was really cool. And then there's the Empire of Ants. There's an island out in the middle of the Gulf or somewhere. It's been developed for people to come buy these homes and come live on the island. But a uh, barrel of radioactive waste lands on there and these ants start eating the radioactive waste. They become ginormous. They make their colony on the island and they start uh, brainwashing people to serve them. So it's a pretty cool invasion of the body snatchers, but not invasion of the body snatchers feel. It was just one of those great, great movies that I really like. Now, there are some creature features out there that I like to poke fun at. And one of them being uh, Meg, one of them being Megan Fox's um, movie about this lion that's chasing her elite team of special forces. It's killing the elite team of special forces. It's just a zombie lion. I mean, come on. We know how to deal with zombies. You put a bullet to the brain. Those are along the lines of what I call the, the movies that are not campy, but they're just plain horrible. They're not quite like the ones where uh, people who have no clue how to make a movie make a movie, but it's it's pretty bad. I, that's why I poke fun of it. And I've, uh, I think I discovered why I don't like those kind of movies or, why, or what they do or what these kind of people do that make me not like their movie. I was looking over Tom Savini's book on special effects. It's because they don't create the illusion. Because he talks about building the illusion and why things work on screen and don't work because they create this illusion. They make the world real. And some of these movies just, that's where they fail. They don't create the illusion to even hook you in. So you're like, this is bad and you turn it off. Now, what do I think of some campy movies that you should go see? Some campy creature features other than Night of the Lepus, Empire of the Ants. Cocaine Bear is one of them. That is a creature feature Beyond belief, because you get to suspend disbelief because the bear eats cocaine. That's the one that creates the illusion for him. Now, the borderline movies, or a borderline movie creature feature, would be like Sharktopus. A uh, genetic mutation created between a shark and an octopus. They're bad. I'm going to tell you that now. They're, they're, they're not good movies. They're bad movies. But they're not horrible. They're worth watching. They're fun. They're, they're something to take place. Like, if you want to watch a shark movie that's not Jaws, Megalodon, or Deep Blue Sea, put on Sharktopus, Six-Headed Shark Attack, Two-Headed Shark Attack. You'll, you won't be, oh, you'll be disappointed. But you know what you're getting into if you watch those. Some of my other favorite, another favorite creature feature of mine, 13 Ghosts. Now, you see, this is where creature features kind of uh, goes in. Because you like... Well, how can that, how, how ghost creature features? Well, it's not really a scary movie. They're, they're creatures. They're ghosts. Same way with like Ghostbusters. I, call, I consider that a creature feature. Any of the vampire movies like we talked about last week, The Lost Boys, The Monster Squad, those are all creature features. I mean, they're like subgenres and a subgenre and a subgenre. So we can't get too complicated with, with, with all of that and creature features. So, I kind of base all my stuff into creature features there. If it's a demonic possession movie or demon movie, well, it tends to be a, uh, I'll call it a possession movie. It still has a supernatural element, but it's a little elevated. 
Another creature feature I think you would like would be Dylan Dog with Brandon Routh. He's the private investigator, kind of uh, mediator between all the zombies, vampires, and werewolves in New Orleans. He's got this cool little investigator's kit, but he stopped becoming an investigator because one of them killed his wife. So he stopped being that, and then he is tricked into becoming the investigator again, and he you know, pretty much solves everything in the end. So that wraps up my uh, take on creature features. We're going to return to Dracula. And when we come back, we are going to talk 80s slashers. Mainly, Freddy, Jason, Michael Myers. Well, it's not all 80s. But when we come back to Frightening Tales... Episode 14, Into Battle. The evil Count Dracula has made Mina Harker his victim. As she faces the possibility of becoming one of the legions of the undead, Van Helsing, Jonathan Harker, and the others intensify the hunt for the monster. Jonathan Harker's Journal as I must do something or go mad, I write this diary. When Dr. Van Helsing and Dr. Seward had come back from seeing poor Renfield, Dr. Seward told us that when he and Dr. Van Helsing had gone down to the room below, they had found Renfield lying on the floor, all in a heap. His face was all bruised and crushed in, and the bones of the neck were broken. When the question began to be discussed as to what should be our next step, the very first thing we decided was that Mina should be in full confidence and that nothing of any sort should be kept from her. She herself agreed as to its wisdom. There must be no concealment. We have had too much already. And besides, there is nothing in all the world that can give me more pain than I have already endured. Then I suffer now. Whatever may happen, it must be of new hope or of new courage to me. But, dear Madam Mina, are you not afraid, not for yourself, but for others from yourself, after what has happened? No, for my mind is made up. On what matter? Because if I find in myself, and I shall watch keenly for it, a sign of harm to any that I love, I shall die. Hmm. You would take your own life? I would. If there were no friend who loved me, who would save me such a pain and so desperate an effort. My child, I myself, with a loving heart, could perform such a task for you, even at this moment, if it were best. It is not safe. You must not die. You must not die by any hand until the other who has fouled your sweet life is true dead. You must not die, for if he is still with the quick undead, your death would make you even as he is. No, you must live until this great evil be past. I see. 
My dear doctor, if God will let me live, I shall strive to do so, till, if it may be in his good time, this horror may have passed away from me. Good, good. Be strong, my child. Have faith. All shall be made right. Now, to our plan of action. How are we to get into that house in Piccadilly? We shall break in if need be. And your police? Where will they be? And what will they say? You see your point. Listen to me. I have the idea. Suppose that you were, in truth, the owner of that house and could not still get in and think there was to you no conscience of the housebreaker. What would you do? I should get a respectable locksmith and set him to work to pick the lock for me. And your police, they would interfere, would they not? Oh, no. Not if they knew the man was properly employed. I think, then, we have our entry. I can be of some use here. My title shall easily hire any locksmith to gain any lock in London. Very good, my friend. And may you also acquire horses and carriages to be at the ready as we may need? Name the locations. I shall wire to my people to have all prepared and ready where they will be most convenient. So be it. It was finally agreed that before starting for Piccadilly we should destroy the Count's lair close at hand. In case he should find it out too soon, we should thus be still ahead of him in our work of destruction, and his presence in his purely material shape, and at his weakest, might give us some new clue. As to the disposal of forces, it was suggested by the professor that, after our visit to Carfax, we should all enter the house in Piccadilly, that the two doctors and I should remain there, whilst Lord Godaming and Quincy should find the lairs at Walworth and Mild End, and destroy them. Come. Breakfast is ready, and we must all eat that we may be strong. Breakfast was a strange meal to us all. We tried to be cheerful and encourage each other, and Mina was the brightest and most cheerful of us. When it was over, Van Helsing stood up and said, Now, my dear friends, we go forth to our terrible enterprise. Are we all armed? as we were on that night when first we visited our enemy's lair, armed against ghostly as well as carnal attack. All are prepared. Then it is well. Now, Madam Mina, you are in any case quite safe here until the sunset, and before then we shall return. I have myself prepared your chamber by the placing of things of which we know, so that he may not enter. Now let me guard yourself. On your forehead, I touch this piece of sacred wafer in the name of the Father, the Son, and... The holy wafer burned into the flesh as though it had been a piece of white-hot metal. I am unclean. Even the Almighty shuns my polluted flesh. I must bear this mark of shame upon my forehead until the judgment day.
it may be that you may have to bear that mark till God himself see fit, as he most surely shall, on the judgment day to redress all wrongs of the earth and of his children that he has placed thereon. And, oh, Madamina, my dear, my dear, may we who love you be there to see when that red scar the sign of God's knowledge of what has been, shall pass away and leave your forehead as pure as the heart we know. For so surely as we live, that scar shall pass away. There was hope in his words and comfort, and they made for resignation. We each pledged ourselves to raise this veil of sorrow, and we prayed for help and guidance in the terrible task which lay before us. We entered Carfax without trouble and found all things the same as on the first occasion. Upon searching, we found no papers or any sign of use in the house, and in the old chapel, the great boxes looked just as we had seen them last. And now, we have a duty here to do. We must sterilize this earth so sacred of holy memories that he has brought from a far distant land for such foul use. He has chosen this earth because it has been holy. Thus, we defeat him with his own weapon, for we make it more holy still. It was sanctified to such use of man. Now, we sanctify it to God. As he spoke, he took from his bag a screwdriver and a wrench, and very soon the top of one of the cases was thrown open. Taking from his box a piece of the sacred wafer, the professor laid it reverently on the earth, and then shutting down the lid began to screw it home, we aiding him as he worked. One by one we treated in the same way each of the great boxes, and left them as we had found them to all appearance, but in each was a portion of the host. When we closed the door behind us, the professor said solemnly, So much is already done. If it may be that with all the others we can be so successful. Let us go. Quincy and I will find a locksmith. You three should go to the green park, somewhere in sight of the house. And when you see the door opened and the smith has gone away, come across. What is happening over there? Patience. But they went in with the locksmith more than five minutes ago. You don't think... Patience. Patience. There. The locksmith. He goes. And Arthur is at the window. All is clear. Come, then. The place had the same vile smell as the chapel at Carfax... It was plain to us that the Count had been using the place pretty freely. We moved to explore the house. In the dining room we found eight boxes of earth. Eight boxes only out of the nine which we sought. Our work was not over and would never be until we should have found the missing box. We did not lose any time in examining the chests. With the tools which we had brought with us we opened them one by one and treated them 
as we had treated those others in the old chapel. After a cursory glance at the rest of the rooms, we came to the conclusion that the dining room contained any effects which might belong to the Count. There were title deeds of purchase for the house at Piccadilly, Mile End, and Bermondsey. There were also a clothes brush, a brush and comb, and a jug and basin, the latter containing dirty water which was reddened as if with blood. Last of all was a heap of keys, those belonging to the other houses. Lord Godalming, Princey, take these notes and these keys. Also, take these sacred hosts. Go to the other houses and destroy what boxes you may find. Mr. Harker, Dr. Seward, and myself must remain in this evil place and await your return. Or the coming of the Count. Dr. Seward's Diary The time seemed terribly long whilst we were waiting for the coming of Godalming and Quincy Morris. The professor tried to keep our minds active by using them all the time. I have studied over and over again since they came into my hands all the papers relating to this monster. And the more I have studied, the greater seems the necessity to utterly stamp him out. All through, there are signs of his advance, not only of his power, but of his knowledge of it. He is experimenting and doing it well, and if it had not been that we have crossed his path, he would be, and may be, should we fail, the father of a new order of beings whose Road must lead through death, not life. Whilst Van Helsing was speaking, we were startled by a knock at the hall door. Shh. I shall see. Yes? Dispatch for Van Helsing. Thank you. You may go. <clears throat> Is there something else? <clears throat> I believe a penny is customary. Oh, yes. I see. Good day. Right. After closing the door, Van Helsing opened the note and read, It is from your asylum. It's from Mina. Look out for D. He has just now 12.45... Come from Carfax hurriedly and hastened towards the south. He seems to be going the round and may want to see you. Now, God be thanked, we shall soon meet. God will act in his own way and time. Do not fear and do not rejoice as yet. What we wish for at the moment may be our undoings. About half an hour after we had received Mrs. Harker's telegram, there came a quiet, resolute knock at the hall door. 
It quickly opened, and we saw Lord Godalming and Quincy Morris. They came quickly in and closed the door behind them. It's all right. We found both places, six boxes in each. We destroyed them all. Good, good. Now we wait for him. But, Doctor, if he doesn't turn up by five o'clock, we must start off, for we cannot leave Mina alone after sunset. He will be here before long now. He can do no other. Hush. At the door. We could hear a key softly inserted in the lock of the hall door. We waited in a suspense that made the seconds pass with nightmare slowness. The slow, careful steps came along the hall. The Count was evidently prepared for some surprise. Suddenly, with a single bound, he leapt into the room, winning away past us before any of us could raise a hand to stay him. The first to act was Harker, who, with a quick movement, threw himself before the door leading into the room. As the Count saw us, a horrible sort of snarl passed over his face, showing the eye-teeth long and pointed, but the evil smile is quickly passed into a cold stare of lion-like disdain. Parker had ready his great cookery knife and made a fierce and sudden cut at him. The point just cut the cloth of his coat, making a wide gap whence a bundle of banknotes and a stream of gold fell out. Instinctively, I moved forward with a protective impulse, holding the crucifix and wafer in my left hand. I felt a mighty power fly along my arm, and it was without surprise I saw the monster cower back. The next instant, with a sinuous dive, he swept under Harker's arm and, grasping a handful of the money from the floor, dashed across the room and threw himself at the window. He turned and spoke to us. You think to baffle me, you, with your pale faces all in a row, like sheep in a butcher's. You shall be sorry yet, each one of you. You think you have left me without a place to rest, but I have more. My revenge is just begun. We have learned much. Notwithstanding his brave words, he fears us. He fear time. He fear want. For if not, why he hurry so? His very brave tone betray him, or my ears deceive. It was now late in the afternoon, and sunset was not far off. We had to recognize that for this day, our game was up. Let us go back to the asylum, to Madame Mina. All we can do just now is done, and we can there at least protect her. But we need not despair. There is but one more earth box, and we must try to find it. When that is done, all may be yet well. That evening at the asylum, the professor fixed up the Harker's bedroom against any coming of the vampire, and assured Mrs. Harker that she might rest in peace. When they had retired, Quincy, Godalming, and I arranged that we should sit up, dividing the night between us. The first watch fell to Quincy, Godalming has already turned in, for his was the second watch. Now I, too, shall rest. Jonathan Harker's Journal 
4 October, morning. Late during the night, I was wakened by Mina. We had all had a good sleep, for the grey of the coming dawn was making the windows into sharp oblongs, and the gas flame was like a speck rather than a disk of light. She said to me hurriedly, Go, call the professor. I want to see him at once. Why? I have an idea. I suppose it must have come to me in the night. He must hypnotize me before the dawn, and then I shall be able to speak. Go quick, dearest. The time is getting close. I went to the door. Dr. Seward was resting on the mattress, and seeing me, he sprang to his feet. Is anything wrong? No, but Mina wants to see Dr. Van Helsing at once. I will go. Two or three minutes later, Van Helsing was in the room in his dressing gown. When he saw Mina smile, the anxiety left his face. Oh, my dear Madame Mina, this is indeed a change. See, friend Jonathan, we have got our dear Madame Mina as of old back to us today. And what am I do for you? For at this hour, you do not want me for nothings. I want you to hypnotize me. Do it before the dawn, for I feel that then I can speak, and speak freely. Be quick, for the time is short. Without a word, he motioned her to sit up in bed. Looking fixedly at her, he commenced to make passes in front of her, from over the top of her head downward, with each hand in turn. Mina gazed at him fixedly. Gradually, her eyes closed, and she sat stock still. Only by the gentle heaving of her bosom could one know that she was alive. Where are you? I do not know. Sleep has no place it can call its own. Dr. Van Helsing motioned me to pull up the blind. I did so, and the day seemed just upon us. A red streak shot up, and a rosy light seemed to diffuse itself through the room. Where are you now? I do not know. It is all strange to me. What do you see? I can see nothing. It is all dark. What do you hear? The lapping of water. It is gurgling by and little waves leap. I can hear them on the outside. Then you are on a ship? Yes, on a ship. What else do you hear? The sound of men stamping overhead as they run about. There is the creaking of a chain and the loud clang as the check of the capstan falls into the wretched. What are you doing? I'm still. Oh, so still. It is like death. The voice faded away into deep breath as of one sleeping and the eyes closed again. Dr. Van Helsing placed his hands on Mina's shoulders and laid her head down softly on her pillow. 
She lay like a sleeping child for a few moments, and then, with a long sigh, awoke and stared in wonder all around her. Van Helsing spoke to Arthur and Quincy, who had quietly entered the room during the hypnosis. There's not a moment to lose. Gentlemen, that ship, wherever it was, was weighing anchor once she spoke. There are many ships weighing anchor at the moment in your so great port of London. Which of them is it that you seek? God be thanked that we have once again a clue. We can know now what was in the Count's mind when he seized that money. He meant escape. He saw that with but one earth box left, and a pack of men following like dogs after a fox. This London was no place for him. He have take his last earth box on board a ship, and he leave the land. He think to escape, but no, we follow him. Our old fox is clever, and we must be clever as well. He is wily. But I too am wily, and I think his mind in a little while. In meantime, we may rest, and in peace, for there are waters between us which he do not want to pass, and which he could not if he would, unless the ship were to touch the land, and then only at full or slack tide. See. And the sun is just rose, and all day to sunset is to us. Let us take bath and dress and have breakfast, which we all need, and which we can eat comfortable, since he be not in the same land with us. But why need we seek him further when he has gone away from us? Because, my dear, dear Madame Mina, now more than ever must we find him, even if we have to follow him to the jaws of hell. But why? Because he can live for centuries, and you are but mortal woman. Time is now to be dreaded, since once he put that mark upon your. Welcome back to Frightening Tales. I'm your host, Justin the Ghoul Man, and I'm joined by Tommy. And we're talking all things horror, at least our favorite horror movies, universal movies, and creature features in our episode Horror 101. Now we're going to move on to the slashers. Oh, yeah. Slasher movies where they could get real creative with the kills. What was in the creature features? You, you just know the monster is going to, like, eat them, rip them in half like poor Samuel L. Jackson in Deep Blue Sea. Here, you get to be a little bit more imaginative. The special effects get to play around with a whole lot more. And this is where Tom Savini is awesome. So when it comes to slasher, there's no topping these four horror movie franchises. Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Halloween, and Scream. 
Now, I've done a little talking. I've done it quite a bit talking about Ghostface and Scream and how his kills are pretty imaginative, but they get um, they get downgraded as we learn the motive behind the killers, which I've already told you, Billy Loomis and Stu Mocker are the best Ghostfaces out there. So let's talk about the other three. Now, Halloween's more of a, a 70s Halloween movie or 70s horror slasher film, but it's what led us to Freddy and Jason. So without Halloween, we don't have those other two iconic villains in the horror universe. Now, when it comes to those three movies, we already know where Scream lies. It's going to be my fourth favorite of them. Freddy is my favorite. Why? Well, Freddy's snarky. Freddy's got comments. Freddy is truly evil. Now, Michael Myers may be considered the essence of evil. The He's been referred to as the shape. And he, he just kind of uh, is there. And uh, But with Freddy, oh, he's going to torment you. He's going to mess with your mind. And then he's got a more, far more gruesome death than any of the other two combined. Now, I really enjoyed the Freddy versus Jason movie. I thought that was uh, done very well. Um, it brought a new light to Freddy. But the movie that really made me see Freddy for what he is and what made me really like the Nightmare on Elm Street movies was the new Nightmare that came out in the 90s. Basically, Wes Craven is uh, its kind of a meta movie. Uh, which is a common thread through a lot of 90s movies, the meta. And uh, Wes Craven is writing a new Nightmare on Elm Street story, and Heather Loggenkamp is starting to have nightmares again. And it basically boils down to Freddy exists because storytellers exist, and storytellers are the ones that keep things like horror, hope, and things alive. And it really kind of what shaped me to say, you know, it's the story that matters the most to me. If I can't get into the story, and the story is a part of the illusion, if you can't catch me in five minutes, I'm going to turn it off. And that's what I like about Freddy. There, there's a story. There's supernatural effect. It's not just a bunch of jump scares or ambushes like Jason and Michael Myers. Now, I, I did say that I was going to talk about Oh, Michael Myers was only fixated on Jamie Lee Curtis's character, blah, blah, blah. Well, when I got to thinking about it and started working on this episode, well, Freddy was pretty well um, fixated on one person, too, at least for a couple of the movies, or for, or for maybe half of the movies in the set. I mean, there's other heroes in the movie that defeat Freddy, but Heather Loggenkamp's character does come back a bit often. Uh, Jason doesn't really seem to have a particular person he's fixated on. It's just whoever happens to be living at that cabin at the time. Unless, of course, he goes to New York like Jason takes Manhattan. Now, the first Friday the 13th does not have Jason in it. It's his mother that's the killer. And there's some gruesome deaths in there. And Tom Savini's book, Grand Illusions, uh, th those were some great scenes to, for him to discuss. But I find the first of the Friday the 13th movies just to be too slow. I've tried to watch it uh, again, and when people call a slow burner, 
this is a slow burner. When I'm when I want a slasher, I want more deaths. I want a few more kills mixed in between. I want a little bit more uh, run, a little more scare, a little more tension building. So for that reason, Jason is kind of ranked number three on my list, where Michael Myers is at number two. Um, I could think of some other. No, I really can't. I can't think of any other killers or slashers that I would put in there. I do know the most terrifying slashers are found in books or when we start watching the true crime series about serial killers. Now that's some slasher material there. And I've, I've mentioned before the Gainesville Ripper was, is the inspiration for Ghostface inside uh, scream. Now Wes Craven tells a better story and I, I gotta go off on a little, little side note here too. When it comes to the Halloween movies, I think we would have had a better we would have had a better Halloween movie, would have had a better villain had John Carpenter stuck with one character and go with it. Number uh, Halloween number 2 was just kind of um we need to do that and then we go to Halloween 3 and you go a completely different subject. Well, that's what John Carpenter originally had. He originally wanted to kind of anthologize the um the series or the franchise. He didn't want to be just Michael Myers here. He wanted like seven, eight different Halloween stories to tell because these are all great because Halloween is not just about one person. It's just about um, the spooky time of the season. And that's why Halloween three season, the witch gets uh, a lot of flack because it didn't have Michael Myers. Everybody considers that one to be a very uh, bad movie. I've watched it and I can see where some parts get really annoying. The the stupid commercial that comes on. Oh, man, that it get really grits on the nerves. And I know through several document I know through several documentaries that the actors got a little fed up with the commercial. But overall, Season of the Witch as a standalone Halloween movie is decent. It's worth watching, even though it doesn't have Michael Myers in it. So let's get back to our slashers. The other thing that makes me like Freddy over the other one, he's more of a, a cultural icon. There's more jokes about Freddy. Robert England is all over the place for it. Freddy got his own TV show. Freddy has his own coffee. I mean, it is just straight up. Freddy is awesome. There was once a pair of Nikes I seen that came out that were Freddy inspired. If it weren't $400, I probably would have got them. So that's going to wrap up our slasher section as you can tell freddy is going to be obviously my favorite we've got michael myers at number two jason at number three and ghostface at number four watch each franchise you'll like them especially if you're in a mood for just unabashed killings and definitely some imaginative killings in there let's return to dracula here on frightening tales when we come back we are going to talk about stephen king Episode 15, The Chase. The Count has fled England and is making his escape to Transylvania by hypnotizing Mina Harker, Dracula's victim. Van Helsing is able to follow his movements. Thus, the chase begins. 
Mina Harker's Journal, 5 October, 5 p.m. Report of our meeting, 5 October. Present, Professor Van Helsing, Lord Godalming, Dr. Seward, Mr. Quincy Morris, Jonathan Harker, Mina Harker. Dr. Van Helsing described what steps were taken during the day to discover on what boat and whither bound Count Dracula made his escape. As I knew that he wanted to get back to Transylvania, I felt sure that he must go by the Danube mouth or by somewhere in the Black Sea, since by that way he come. So, we find what ships leave for the Black Sea last night. We find that only one Black Sea-bound ship go out of the tide. She is the Tsarina Catherine. So, off we go to Doolittle's Wharf, and there we are told of a tall man, thin and pale, with high nose and teeth so white, and eyes that seem to be burning. We know then that the Count take passage aboard this ship. And so it is that we have to rest for a time, for our enemy is on the sea with the fog at his command, on his way to the Danube mouth. To sail a ship takes time, so she never goes so quick. And when we start, we go on land more quick, and we meet him there. Our best hope is to come on him when in the box between sunrise and sunset, for then he can make no struggle, and we may deal with him as we should. Can we be certain that the Count had remained on board the ship? We have the best proof this morning from the hypnotic trance of Madame Mina. After a general discussion, it was determined that for tonight nothing be definitely settled, that we should all sleep on the facts and try to think out the proper conclusions. Tomorrow at breakfast we are to meet again, and after making our conclusions known to one another, we shall decide on some definite course of action. I feel a wonderful peace and rest tonight. It is as if some haunting presence were removed from me. Perhaps... But no. For I caught sight in the mirror of the red mark upon my forehead. And I knew that I was still unclean. Van Helsing came to my study alone. I could see that he had something on his mind which he wanted to say, but felt some hesitancy about broaching the subject. After beating about the bush a little, he said, Friend John, there is something that you and I must talk of alone. Madame Mina is changing. I can see the characteristics of the vampire coming in her face. Her teeth are some sharper. At times... Her eyes are more hard. Now, my fear is this. May I come in? Mina! Dr. Van Helsing, this is not an easy task for me, so let me say it quickly. I will not be joining the meetings for this point forward. I feel it better that you should be free to discuss our plan without my knowing. I suspect your reasoning is correct. What on earth are you two talking about? Perhaps you will explain, my dear. 
It is simple, really. If, by hypnosis, I can read the Count's mind, he can, I am sure, read mine. I have, in fact, felt his presence. It is as I suspected. Very well. John, we must go. It is time for our gathering. The Tsarina Catherine left the Thames yesterday morning. It will take her, at the quickest speed she has ever made, at least three weeks to reach Varna. But we can travel overland to the same place in three days. Now, if we allow for two days less for the ship's voyage, owing to such weather influence as we know that the Count can bring to bear, and if we allow a whole day and night for any delays which may occur to us, then we have a margin of nearly two weeks. Thus, in order to be quite safe, we must leave here on 17th at latest. Then we shall at any rate be in Varna a day before the ship arrives and able to make such preparations as may be necessary. Of course, we shall all go armed against evil things, spiritual as well as physical. Professor. Yes, Mr. Morris. I understand the Count comes from a wolf country, and it may be that he shall get there before us. I propose we add Winchesters to our weaponry. In fact, why don't you take care of the spiritual end and let Arthur and I lay out the heavy armaments? Heavy armaments? I have a kind of a belief in a Winchester when there is any trouble around. Do you remember, Art, when we had that pack after us at Tobolsk? I should say so. Be prepared. I always say. Quite so. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound... Yes, yes, all right. Very well. It is done. Winchester's it shall be. Princey's head is level at all times, but most so when there is to hunt. Now, this day ends. In the morning, we shall begin our preparations. Jonathan Harker's Journal. Morning. Another surprise. Mina woke me early, about the same time as yesterday, and asked me to bring Dr. Van Helsing. He came at once. Yes, Madame Mina. I must go with you on your journey. But why? I am safer with you, and you shall be safer too. But why, Madame Mina? You know that your safety is our solemnest duty. We go into danger to which you are the most vulnerable. I know. That is why I must go. I can tell you now whilst the sun is coming up. I may not be able again. I know that when the Count wills me, I must go. I know that if he tells me to come in secret, I must come by wile, by any device to hoodwink any of you, even Jonathan. Madam Mina, you are as always most wise. You shall with us come, and together we shall do that which we go forth to achieve. When he had spoken, Mina's long spell of silence made me look at her. She had fallen back on her pillow asleep and did not even wake when I had pulled up the blind and let in the sunlight which flooded the room. 
Van Helsing motioned to me to come with him quietly. We went to his room, and within a minute, Lord Godalming, Dr. Seward, and Mr. Morris were with us also. He told them what Mina had said, and then went on. In the morning, we shall leave for Varna. We have now to deal with a new factor, Madame Mina. Oh, but her soul is true. It is to her an agony to tell us so much as she has done. But it is most right, and we are warned in time. There must be no chance lost, and in Varna we must be ready to act the instant when that ship arrives. What shall we do exactly? We shall at the first board that ship. Then, when we have identified the box, we shall place a branch of the wild rose on it. This we shall fasten, for when it is there, none can emerge. So, at least, says the superstition. Then, when we get the opportunity that we seek, when none are near to see, we shall open the box. And... And... And all will be made well. There was nothing further to be said, and we parted. I shall now settle up all my affairs of Earth be ready for whatever may come. 15 October, Varna. We left Charing Cross on the morning of the 12th, got to Paris the same night, and took the places secured for us in the Orient Express. We traveled night and day, arriving here at about 5 o'clock. Lord Godalming went to the consulate to see if any telegram had arrived for him, whilst the rest of us came on to this hotel, the Odysseus. The journey may have had incidents. I was, however, too eager to get on to care for them. Until the Tsarina Catherine comes into port, there will be no interest for me in anything in the wide world. Thank God, Mina is well, and looks to be getting stronger. Her color is coming back. She sleeps a great deal. Throughout the journey, she slept nearly all the time. Before sunrise and sunset, however, she is very wakeful and alert, and it has become a habit for Van Helsing to hypnotize her at such times. At first, some effort was needed, and he had to make many passes, but now she seems to yield at once, as if by habit, and scarcely any action is needed. What can you see? Nothing. All is dark. the waves lapping against the ship and the water rushing by. Canvas and cordage strain and masts and yards creak. The wind is high. I can hear it in the shrouds and the bow throws back the foam. It is evident that the Tsarina Catherine is still at sea, hastening on her way to Varna. Lord Godalming has just returned. He had four telegrams, one each day since we started, and all to the same effect, that the Tsarina Catherine had not been reported to Lloyd's from anywhere. He had arranged before leaving London that his agent should send him every day a telegram saying if the ship had been reported. He was to have a message even if she were not reported so that he might be sure that there was a watch being kept at the other end of the wire. 
Mina's daily report still the same. Lapping waves and rushing water, darkness and favoring winds. We are evidently in good time, and when we hear of the Tsarina Catherine, we shall be ready. As she must pass the Dardanelles, we are sure to have some report. of waiting. Daily telegrams to Godalming, but only the same story, not yet reported. Mina's morning and evening hypnotic answer is unvaried. Lapping waves, rushing water, and creaking masts. Until today's message. Telegram, October 24th. Rufus Smith, Lloyds, London, to Lord Godalming. Care of HBM 10, Vice Consul Varna. Tsarina Catherine reported this morning from Dardanelles. Twenty-five October. No news yet of the ship's arrival. Mrs. Harker's hypnotic report this morning was the same as usual, so it is possible that we may get news at any moment. Twenty-seven October. Noon. Most strange. Almost three days and no news yet of the ship we wait for. The telegrams from London have been the same. No further report. Something is most wrong. I know it. This waiting is driving me mad. We must act. We must do something. Here. I have today's telegram. Bring it here. Quickly. It is as I feared. The fox has shown its cunning. Let me see. Tsarina Catherine reported entering Galatz at one o'clock today. Galatz? How in the world? When does the next train start for Galatz? At 6.30 tomorrow morning. Can we get a special? I fear not. This land is very different from yours or mine. Even if we did have a special, it would probably not arrive as soon as our regular train. Moreover, we have something to prepare. We must think. Now, let us organize. You, friend Arthur, go to the train and get the tickets and arrange that all be ready for us to go in the morning. Do you, friend Jonathan, go to the agent of the ship and get from him letters to the agent in Galatz with authority to make search the ship just as it was here. Quincy Morris, you see the vice consul and get his aid with this fellow in Galatz and all he can do to make our way smooth so that no times be lost when over the dungeon. John will stay with Madame Mina and me and we shall consult. For so if time be long you may be delayed and it will not matter when the sun set since I am here with Madame to make the fault. And I shall try to be of use in all ways and shall think and write for you as I used to do. Something is shifting from me in some strange way, and I feel freer than I have been of late. When Mina said this, Van Helsing and I turned to each other and met each other with a grave and troubled glance. Madame Mina, how do you mean, free? Why, I can't say really. But now that I think of it, my mind feels clear. 
as if his presence were gone. Oh, if it be true, such a great blessing we receive. What do you mean? Adamina, in these past weeks, he has so often used your mind, and by it he has left us here in Varna, whilst the ship that carried him rushed through enveloping fog up to Galatz, where doubtless he had made preparation for escaping from us. But his child mind only saw so far, and it may be that, as ever in God's providence, the very thing that the evildoer most reckoned on for his selfish good turns out to be his chiefest harm. For now that he think he is free from every trace of us all, and that he has escaped us with so many hours to him, he think, too, that if he cut himself off from knowing your mind, there can be no knowledge of him to you. And to guard himself, have even cut himself off from knowledge of our whereabouts. This is where he failed. That terrible baptism of blood which he give you makes you free to go to him in spirit, as you have as yet done in your times of freedom, when the sun rise and set. Then, as he is criminal, he is selfish. He is intent on being safe, careless of all. So his own selfishness frees my soul somewhat from the terrible power which he acquired over me on that dreadful night. I felt it. Oh, I felt it. Thank God for his great mercy. My soul is freer than it has been since that awful hour. And all that haunts me is a fear lest in some trance or dream he may have used my knowledge for his ends. In all, you are correct. We, however, are not selfish. We believe that God is with us through all this blackness and these many dark hours. We shall follow him. We shall not flinch, and with God's blessing, we shall prevail. Twenty-nine October. This is written in the train from Varna to Galatz. Last night we all assembled a little before the time of sunset. When the usual time came round, Mina Harker prepared herself for her hypnotic effort, and after a longer and more strenuous effort on the part of Van Helsing than has been necessary usually, she sank into a trance. I can see nothing. We are still. There are no waves lapping. I can hear men's voices calling near and far, and the roll and creak of oars in the rowlock. A gun is fired somewhere. The echo of it seems far away. There is tramping of feet overhead, and ropes and chains are dragging along. What is this? There is a gleam of light. I can feel the air blowing upon me. Here she stopped. 
She had risen, as if impulsively from where she lay on the sofa, and raised both her hands, palms upward, as if lifting a weight. Van Helsing and I looked at each other with understanding. Quincy raised his eyebrows slightly and looked at her intently, whilst Harker's hand instinctively closed round the hilt of his kukri knife. There was a long pause. We all knew that the time when she could speak was passing, but we felt that it was useless to say anything. Suddenly, she sat up, and as she opened her eyes, said sweetly, Would none of you like a cup of tea? You must all be so tired. We could only make her happy, and so acquiesced. She bustled off to get tea. When she'd gone, Van Helsing said, You see, my friends, he is close to land. He has left his earth chest, but he has yet to get on shore. In the night, he may lie hidden somewhere, but if he be not carried on shore, or if the ship do not touch it, he cannot achieve the land. We may then arrive in time, for if he escape not at night, we shall come on him in daytime, boxed up and at our mercy. For he dare not be his true self, awake and visible, lest he be discovered. The following morning, Mrs. Harker gave this report. All is dark. I hear lapping water level with me and some creaking as of wood on wood. Still he waits. Still he is his own prisoner. And so it is that we are traveling toward Galatz in an agony of expectation. We are due to arrive between two and three in the morning, but already at Bucharest we are three hours late, so we cannot possibly get in till well into summer. I may not have time to write later. Sunrise this morning was anxiously looked for by us all. Knowing of the increasing difficulty of procuring hypnotic draughts, Van Helsing began his passes earlier than usual. They produced no effect, however, until the regular time, when she yielded with a still greater difficulty. All is dark. I hear water swirling by, level with my ears and the creaking of wood on wood. Cattle low far off. There is another sound. A queer one, like, like, are sounding. We are nearing Galatz, 
we are on fire with anxiety and eagerness. Thirty October, Galatz, evening. I have asked Dr. Van Helsing, and he's got me all the papers that I have not yet seen. I have gone over them all carefully, and I do believe that under God's providence, I have made a discovery. My surmise is this: that in London, the Count decided to get back to his castle by water as the most safe and secret way. I have examined the map. And find that the river most suitable is either the Pruth or the Seraph. Now, of these two, the Pruth is the most easily navigated, but the Seraph is at Fundu, joined by the Bistritza, which runs up around the Borgo Pass. The loop it makes is manifestly as close to Dracula's castle as can be got by water. This then is his route. I have found him. He is on the Seraph, headed for the Bistritza. And then on to the Borgo Pass. Welcome back to Frightening Tales. Tonight we're talking horror 101. Basically everything that we like about horror movies and why we got hooked on horror in the first place. We've talked about the Universal Monsters. We've talked about Freddy, Jason, and Michael Myers. And we've even given you a few of our favorite horror movies that we really, really, really like. And so now we got to talk about the man that is an icon in the horror industry. We're going to disregard his politics for the moment because uh, anytime he opens his mouth on Twitter, I kind of like, man, why do I read this guy? Why do I watch the, these movies over and over again? So in order to not shape that worldview, we are going to talk about Stephen King. Now, I've only read three of Stephen King's books, The Stand, It, and his book on writing. And unfortunately, his best book is on writing. He's got a lot of great tips to be a great writer, just doesn't seem to follow his own advice. He's like Anne Rice. He's going to give you a 1,000-page um, book, and he's going to drift along the way to get you there. It especially was tough to get through. Uh, it, it really just wound a path along. There, there's, there's something to say about those those books. He spends a great deal of time mapping out the city for you. What street connects here? What street connects there? Here's the history of this city. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, I think you could have done a lot better without showing me. There's always that expression, show, don't tell. Well, he was telling me about the city, and I didn't really care about the city. I cared more about the characters. I wanted to get to know it. Now, another thing about Stephen King, and he makes fun of it in it with, with the main characters that uh, can't stick the landing. And what I mean by he can't stick the landing is that his endings are crap. The way he ends a book, you're like, what? Really? We'll take it, for example. It was supposed to be this fearful villain of a, you you thinking he was like a ghost and all the other stuff. And it turned out to be an alien. Now, there's plenty of aliens to be scared of. But the way they defeated him was like, really? So the moment you realize you are not scared of him anymore, you zap his power and then he becomes this shriveled up thing that you can kill. Or take the ending for Dr. Sleep. You'll go, when it ends, you're like, what? 
Now, the few endings that he does stick seems to be on anything that he has done as a short story. And I think that's where Stephen King really excels is in writing short stories. Uh, because he can, he can follow his own advice and he can stick the landing on that. So what are my favorite Stephen King movies? Cat's Eye comes in at top. It's an anthology and I really love it because of the troll in it. We'll talk more about anthologies in the next segment. But Cat's Eye is one of my favorites. Maximum Overdrive. Now, we've talked about that in the first episode of Frightening Tales about Maximum Overdrive. UFO comes in. You're starting to see a theme here. Aliens are mostly the villains when it comes to Stephen King books. The, uh, the UFO is out there above the earth, takes control of all the vehicles, and mayhem ensues. Emilio Estevez, great in that movie. Uh, we talked about more about it in episode one. It comes in at number four, and then Dr. Sleep. Now, I tried watching The Shining. I didn't really like The Shining all that, but Dr. Sleep is the sequel to The Shining. It's much better produced. It's a much better story up until you get the end. The villains in it is great. Ewan McGregor is good in his spot as, um, as the son of Jack Nicholson's character in The Shining. Great, great, great little movie. So I don't want to spend a whole lot of time talking about the other movies. I want to talk about It. Because when it comes to the Stephen King movies, It's are the quintessential watching movies. Now, there's two versions of It to watch. There's the made-for-TV version that stars Tim Curry as Pennywise. Hi, Georgie. Aren't you going to say hello? Oh. Come on, bucko. Don't you want a balloon? And then there's the 2017 adaptation that has Bill Skarsgård as Pennywise. Do you want a balloon too, Georgie? I'm not supposed to take stuff from strangers. Oh, well, I'm Pennywise the dancing clown. Pennywise? Yes, meet Georgie. Georgie, meet Pennywise. <laughs> Now both of these movies are great. They're long to watch, and they will get. And I understand why people are afraid of clowns. Watch it, and you will understand why a lot of people are scared of clowns. Now, to me, Tim Curry is the better Pennywise, because he has less to work with. Less, um, he's more involved in the process. I should say it's not that he has less of. It's that Tim put more work into it. He had more of a training, and he really owned up to the character. So. It's like a great song that gets remade. Usually the original is the better because they're the ones that are most invested in it. They're not trying to copy something. They're not trying to be something different. Plus, Tim Curry, to me, is the face of Halloween. You got him in Rocky Horror Picture Show. You have him in It. And then he's the villain in Legend. I mean, he's this great big devil-horned monster in Legend. By the way, one of the best fantasy movies out there is Legend. And it, it crosses right over into horror beautifully. It's one of those great crossover movies. So that's why Tim Curry is the better Pennywise. Now that's not to take away from Bill Skarsgård. Bill Skarsgård, when the Pennywise in the current movies, he is phenomenal as Pennywise. He's creepy. He's believable. So, I mean, it is a tough choice to pick between Curry or Skarsgård, but Curry to me has a special place. So he, he's a bit above Skarsgård. Plus, Skarsgård, their scenes, or they talk about behind the scenes, of uh, some things that Skarsgård could do that creeped out his co or his um his colleagues there. 
Now, Skarsgård himself is on his way to be this generation's Tim Curry when it comes to character actors. Uh, besides Pennywise, he kind of got his start in the show Hemlock Grove. A little strange show, but worth checking out. He's currently filming Nosferatu, the remake in that version, so I can't wait to see how he pulls that off. So he's a great character actor as well. Now, when it comes to the movie versus the miniseries, the miniseries has a problem, and its problem shines through the, the entire time. It's made for TV, so they have to hold back. They can't go gruesome in certain scenes. They can't show something. They have to more, uh, more or less imply something. The special effects are a little weaker because the budget's not there. Now, there's a great documentary on the making of the miniseries, which goes into the behind the scenes of all the, uh, the the kid actors, the main actors. The miniseries has a great cast. You got John Ritter in it, Annette O'Toole, and a bunch of other faces that you'll recognize. And then you've got Seth Green, one of his first careers, Jonathan Brandis. Those are some of the kid actors that you'll see in there. Now, as I said, so when it comes to the movie in the miniseries, I'm going to pick the movie over it because it, it completes the illusion, I guess is what I'm trying to say. The miniseries didn't, you, you felt the illusion, you were caught into it, but something always felt a degree off. But when you watch the movie, that that is gone. And when it comes to the movie, there, there's a few big name actors, and I can't just think of them off the top of my head, so how big of a name are they? But I do like Bill Skarsgård. I like the story we go into it. Professor X is in there. He's, he's the main character, Bill. And it, it just we goes off into a, a much better exploration of the book. We get the book ending, so again, it sticks doesn't stick the landing. But overall, the movie is better. Now... The miniseries never made me jump, and there's a good jump scare inside the movie that actually made me jump, because there's very few jump scares that you'll get me, and I didn't see this one coming, and he got me good. I almost screamed. Almost. I mean, it was right there at the tip of my tongue, but I caught it. Man, I wish I'd have been there to see that. Them It movies. Now, I, I, you know, you're sitting there and they had the, the silver that they need. and uh, You know me. I would have brought out the usual suspects to fight whatever it or Pennywise was. I would have brought out the usual suspects. Fear, Dante. There wouldn't have been any of all this crazy stuff. But would you have been scared? I mean, the whole thing about Pennywise was that he could shift into what you fear the most. And then you had to learn how to conquer that fear. Oh, Poor Pennywise. He'd have turned into an empty magazine. <laughs> an empty magazine? Yeah, because that's what I fear. Running out of ammo. Well, so that wraps up Stephen King. Overall, I won't write his I won't read his books, but if a movie is slapped on there and it says Stephen King's Now we know he didn't direct the movie. He just wrote the screenplay for the movie and he they licensed out the right for it which i've heard you can actually uh license out some of his movies for like a dollar and then you can make it i might have to look into that one day return to dracula here on frightening tales Episode 16, 
The Final Encounter. Count Dracula has fled London in the hopes of reaching safe haven in Transylvania. Van Helsing, Dr. Seward, Mina Harker, Jonathan Harker, Arthur Holmwood, and Quincy Morris have pursued the vampire and now hope to confront him at the Borgo Pass. And so there it is. I believe he will take the river Serif to where it joins the Bistritza, which winds up round the Borgo Pass. It's logical, all right. Madam Mina, your insight has saved our hunt, and perhaps your own soul. Now we are on the track once again, and this time we may succeed. Our enemy is at his most helpless, and if we can come on him by day, on the water, our task will be over. I shall get a steam launch and follow him. Good, Arthur. Good. And you, Quincy? I'll travel with the horses to follow on the bank if by chance he lands. Good. Both good. But neither must go alone. There must be force to overcome force if need be. The Slovak is strong and rough, and he carries rude arms. John Seward, you will go with Quincy. Very well. And Arthur... You must not be alone. Mr. Harker shall be with you. But my place is with Mina. Be not afraid for Madame Mina. She will be in my care. I am old, but I can be of other service. I can fight in other way. And I can die if need be, as well as younger men. Now, let me say that what I would is this. While you, Arthur, and friend Jonathan go up the river, and whilst... John and Quincy guard the bank where perchance he might be landed. I will take Madame Mina right into the heart of the enemy's country. Whilst the old fox is tied in his box, floating on the running stream whence he cannot escape to land, we, Madame Mina and myself, shall go in the track where Jonathan went. From Bistritz over the Borgo and find our way to the castle of Dracula. Here, Madame Mina's hypnotic power will surely help, and we shall find our way. Do you mean to say, Professor Van Helsing, that you would bring Mina, in her sad case and tainted as she is with that devil's illness, right into the jaws of his death trap? Do you know what that place is? Have you seen that awful den of hellish infamy with the very moonlight alive with grisly shapes and every speck of dust that whirls in the wind, a devouring monster and embryo? Have you felt the vampire's lips upon your throat? Oh, my friend, it is because I would save Madame Mina from that awful place that I would go. God forbid that I should take her into that place, but that we are in terrible straits, and it must be so. Do as you will. We are in the hands of God. November, evening, with Arthur. Three days on the water, we have found nothing of the quarry we seek. I wonder where Mina is now, and Van Helsing. They should have got to Varesti about noon on Wednesday. It would take them some time to get the carriage and horses, so if they had started and traveled hard, they would be about now at the Borgo Pass. God guide and help them. I'm afraid to think what may happen. It 
we could only go faster. 4 November, with Quincy Morris. Five days on the road, very little news. Today we heard of the launch having been detained by accident when trying to force away up the rapids. The Slovak boats get up all right by aid of a rope and steering with knowledge. Some went up only a few hours before. But Alming is an amateur fitter himself and evidently it was he who put the launch in trim again. Finally, they got up the rapids all right with local help and are off on the chase afresh. With Van Helsing. Four days we have traveled and at a good speed. The horses seem to know that they are being kindly treated for they go willingly their full stage at best speed. Dr. Van Helsing is laconic. He tells the farmers that he is hurrying to be streets and pays them well to make the exchange of horses. We are traveling fast and have no driver with us to carry tales. But I dare say that fear of the evil eye will follow hard behind us all the way. The professor comes to hypnotize me. The sun begins to set. Come, my child. Rest here by this tree. I fear that it is you that should rest, Professor. Oh, not I, Madame Mina. Yes, we pursue this devil with holy purpose. And yes, we face the gravest of dangers. But all of this, this chase, this cause... Ah, not since my youth have I felt such energy. But now, come. Look into the sunset. Look. See him rest. See him sleep. To sleep. Sleep. What do you see? Darkness. The darkness of the grave. Creaking wood and water. Roaring water. And? There is nothing else. Only the wood and the water and the darkness. my child. Gently come back to me. Is there any news? The river is changing as they ascend. Nothing more. Are we then on time? By morning we shall reach the Borgo Pass. The houses are very few here now. And the last horses we got will have to go on with us, as we may not be able to change. We shall get to the pass in daylight. We do not want to arrive before. So we take it easy, and each have a long rest in turn. So now we rest and pray. Oh, what will tomorrow bring to us? We go to seek the place where poor Jonathan suffered so much. God grant that we may be well guided 
and that he will deign to watch over my husband and those dear to us both, and who are in such deadly peril. Write this memorandum for Dr. John Seward. Let me be accurate in everything. For though you and I have seen some strange things together, you may at the first think that I, Van Helsing, am mad. All yesterday we travel, ever getting closer to the mountains, moving into a more and more wild and desert land. Nina still sleep and sleep, and I could not waken her, even for food. I began to feel that the fatal spell of the place was upon her, tainted as she is with that vampire baptism. Then, ere the great dark came upon us, I took out the horses and fed them in what shelter I could. Then, I make a fire. Near it, I make Madame Mina, now awake and more charming than ever, sit comfortable amid her rugs. Tonight will be cold. As the dead know the cold grave. Here is food. Take of it. I'm not hungry. As you say. What are you doing? I make the ring around you, see? Ring around the rosy, yes? What are you sprinkling? To protect you, my child. In the ring, I sprinkle bits of the sacred wafer. Oh, Professor. I am so frightened. So terribly frightened. Have faith. All will be well. See? The ring around you is complete. When you rest tonight, you shall rest therein. But now, come here to me, closer to the fire. Very well. I... Yes? I... I cannot. It is so. But as you cannot leave the ring... Others may not enter. And so, though there might be danger to your body, your soul is safe. You will not leave me. No, my child. I will not leave you. Presently, the horses began to scream and tore at their tethers till I came to them and quieted them. When they did feel my hands on them, they whinnied low as in joy and licked at my hands and were quiet for a time. In the cold hour, the fire began to die. And in the dark, there was a light of some kind and it seemed as though the snow flurries and the wreaths of mist took shape as of women with trailing garments. Feared for my dear Madame Mina when these weird figures drew near and circled round. I looked at her, but 
she sat calm and smiled at me. When I would have stepped to the fire to replenish it, she caught me and held me back and whispered. No. No. Do not go beyond the ring. Here you are safe. But you... It is for you that I fear. Fear for me? Why fear for me? None safer in all the world from them than am I. As I wondered at the meaning of her words, a pop-up wind made the flame leap up, and I see the red scar on her forehead. Then, alas, I knew. Did I not, I would soon have learned, for the wheeling figures of mist and snow came closer, but keeping ever without the holy circle. Then they began to materialize, till there were before me in actual flesh the same three women that Jonathan saw in the room when they would have kissed his throat. Round forms, the bright hard eyes, the white teeth, the ruddy color, the voluptuous lips. They smiled ever at poor dear Madame Mina, and as their laugh came through the silence of the night, they twined their arms and pointed to her. Come, sister, come with us. Please, doctor. Help me. Begone, demons. You may not enter here. This one is not of you. Go. Go to your master and tell him that I come for him with all the power of heaven. They drew back before me and laughed their low, horrid laugh. I fed the fire and feared them not, for I knew that we were safe within our protections. They could not approach me whilst so armed, nor Madame Mina while she remained within the ring, which she could not leave no more than they could enter. The horses had ceased to moan and lay still on the ground. The snow fell on them softly, and they grew whiter. I knew that there was for the poor beasts no more of terror. And so we remained till the red of the dawn began to fall through the snow gloom. I was desolate and afraid and full of woe and terror. But when that beautiful sun began to climb the horizon, life was to me again. At the first coming of the dawn, the horrid figures melted in the whirling mist. The wreaths of transparent gloom moved away and were lost. And there, a short distance away, stood the castle. Castle Dracula.
With the dawn, we see the body of Zigeni before us dashing away from the river with their wagon. Far off, I hear the howling of wolves. The horses are nearly ready and we are off soon. We ride to the death of someone. God alone knows who, or where, or what, or when, or how it may be. Six November. It was late in the afternoon when the professor and I took our way towards the east whence I knew Jonathan was coming. We did not go fast, though the way was steeply downhill, for we had to take heavy rugs and wraps with us. We dared not face the possibility of being left without warmth in the cold and the snow. In a little while, the professor had found a wonderful spot, a sort of natural hollow in a rock, with an entrance like a doorway between two boulders. See, here you will be in shelter. And if the wolves do come, I can meet them one by one. He brought in our furs and made a snug nest for me and got out some provisions and forced them upon me. But I could not eat. To even try to do so was so repulsive to me. And much as I would have liked to please him, I could not bring myself to the attempt. He looked very sad, but did not reproach me. Taking his field glasses from the case, he stood on the top of the rock and began to search the horizon. Look! Madame Mina! Look! Look! Straight in front of us, and not far off, came a group of mounted men hurrying along. I could see from their clothing that they were peasants or gypsies of some kind. In the midst of them was a cart, and on the cart was a great square chest. The evening draws nigh. Do you see Jonathan and the others? There is no one. Wait! There! Look! Two horsemen follow fast, coming up from the south. It must be John Seward and Mr. Morris. Take the glass. Look, before the snow blots it all out. Yes, I see them. And look, to the north, it is Jonathan and Arthur. They are all converging. When time comes, we shall have the gypsies on all sides. Every instant seemed an age whilst we waited. The wind came now with fiercer and more bitter sweeps and more steadily from the north. They were all coming to us, the pursuers and the pursued. And the gypsies seemed to hasten with redoubled speed as the sun dropped lower and lower on the mountain tops. Closer and closer they drew. Professor and I crouched down behind our rock and held our weapons ready. I could see that he was determined that they should not pass. One and all were quite unaware of our presence. All at once, I heard Jonathan. Halt! And in a great thunder of hooves, Dr. Seward and Mr. Morris rode into the train. Quick! Quick! Look! Our parties, 
the leader of the gypsies gave a command and his men gathered around the cart. In the midst of this, I could see Jonathan. The singleness of his purpose seemed to overawe the gypsies, and instinctively they cowered aside and let him pass. In an instant, he had jumped upon the cart, and with a strength which seemed incredible, raised the great box and flung it over the wheel to the ground. In the meantime, Quincy Morris had had to use force to pass through his side of the ring of gaming. I could see the knives of the gypsies flash as they cut at him. He had parried with his great bowie knife, and at first I thought that he too had come through in safety. But as he sprang to the broken crate, I could see that he was clutching at his side, and that the blood was spurting through his fingers. And yet, he attacked one end of the chest, attempting to pry off the lid with his great bowie knife. The lid began to heave, and the top of the box was thrown back. I saw the count lying within the box upon the earth, some of which the rude falling from the cart had scattered all over him. He was deathly pale, just like a waxen image, and his red eyes glared. As the eyes saw the sinking sun, the look of hate in them turned to triumph. And now, my friend, of Jonathan's great knife. It sheared through the throat, whilst at the same moment Mr. Morris's bowie knife plunged into the heart. It was like a miracle. But before our very eyes, and almost in the drawing of a breath, the whole body crumbled into dust and passed from our sight. The castle of Dracula now stood out against the red sky, and every stone of its broken battlements was articulated against the light of the setting sun. Look, at Mina's face. The sun was now right down upon the mountaintop, and the red gleams fell upon my face so that it was bathed in a rosy light. Now, God be thanked that all has not been in vain. See, the snow is not more stainless than her forehead. A curse has passed away. Seven years ago, we all went through the flames, and the happiness of some of us since then is we think, well worth the pain we endured. In the summer of this year, we made a journey to Transylvania and went over the old ground which was, and is to us, so full of vivid and terrible memories. It was almost impossible to believe that the things which we had seen with our own eyes and heard with our own ears were living truths. Every trace of all that had been was blotted out. Only the castle stood as before, reared high above a waste of desolation.
Welcome back to Frightening Tales. I am the Ghoul Man, and I'm joined by Tommy. Tonight, we're talking all things horror movie in our Horror 101 episode. We've talked about creature features, the universal monsters, Stephen King, Freddy Krueger, and our favorite horror movies. And now I'm kind of on to one of my favorite genres of horror, and that's the anthologies. And it what? An anthology. Basically, one movie with three to five different stories told inside. You know, I mentioned earlier about Cat's Eye from Stephen King, which is a bunch of his short stories. I shouldn't say bunch. It's like three short stories of his combined into one movie. The different stories, they have nothing to do with each other, but they're great, they're entertaining, and there may be some intertwining moments. Now, when it comes to anthologies, the best one out there is Trick or Treat. This was a uh, movie that was supposed to be straight to DVD, got delayed, and then was forgotten for a little bit until the DVD was released. So last year when they released it to the big theater or to the big screen, oh, I was there to watch it because Trick or Treat is my favorite horror movie of all time. There's just so many elements to this movie that I like. There's five stories. They all intertwine with each other. They don't know they intertwine with each other. That's the best part of it. And there's only one little character, Sam, that you see throughout the movie. You've got werewolves. You've got a serial killer. You've got uh, kids being mischievous on Halloweens. And you've got the story where the town has a dark secret. I mean, all these elements are combined into one. There, there, you know, there's somebody pretending to be a vampire, but the werewolves get him. And I think in this movie has the best werewolf transformation ever. And if you didn't listen to my Rougarou episode of Frightening Tales, you would know that instead of just a transformation, the werewolves actually remove parts of their skin. And it's kind of like a uh, like the human part is the costume the wolf is the real part so it, i consider this like the mcu of anthologies and that's trick or treat uh there's some good actors in there uh anna paquin and there's a few that i recognize from a few from a show that i like dead like me uh so there, there's some great uh acting in there the story is phenomenal another anthology that you need to check out is Creep Show. This is directed by George Romero and written by Stephen King. So again, we've got two Stephen King anthologies entire, inside this entire uh, episode here: Cat's Eye and uh, Creep Show. Now, Creep Show gives you uh, a good uh, cast throughout the uh, the movie. You got E.G. Marshall, the host of uh, CBS Radio Mysteries. He's scared of cockroaches. Oh, that that one's a good episode, or a good segment in there. My favorite segment of Creep Show is Ted Danson and Leslie Nielsen's little story in there. Uh, basically, Ted Nielsen is cheating with uh, Leslie Nielsen's wife, and Leslie Nielsen gets to play a really good bad guy for a guy who's been who spent most of his life doing comedy. Leslie Nielsen as a villain was downright awesome. I think that was kind of the best pick, and I think that's why I really like this uh, segment a whole lot more. So let me set up the scene, and I'm going to give you a, a quick clip of Creepshow. Basically, Leslie Nielsen has kidnapped Ted Danson and has taken him out to a private island. We're going to say like Cape Cod kind of area, but up in the northeast. 
And he forces Ted Danson to bury himself in sand up to his head. And the sand compacts so tight he can't move. Now, Leslie Nielsen is going to leave him here on the beach as the tide comes in. And here's the scene for you. I'll give you anything. Just get, just get me out of this hole, all right? Well, I have something here, Harry. Take your mind off of it. Come on, Richard, please. Hey, Shelton! <laughs> Becky? That great video? I love this stuff. Now, just look at the quality of that picture, Harry. Somebody! Becky? <laughs> no! Becky! Can't hear you. I'm sorry. She lost a coin toss. I had to bury her further down the beach. Oh. Couldn't even leave her a monitor. Would have shorted out by now. No, no. No, that's a trick. That's some uh, some kind of uh, special effects trick, isn't it? If you just take a look at the VCR back there. Oh, I'm sorry. You can't turn your head. Let me assure you, Harry, the VCR is not on play. It's on record. I'm going to save this stuff. Dude, you're a part of my whole movie. You're insane. Oh, now, as with most oh stories found in Creep Show, the ending is usually uh, either the bad guy gets it in the end, like Leslie Nielsen does when Ted Danson and um, the other character come back to life as uh, these sea-energized zombies, or it works out to your or to their advantage but leaves it a cliffhanger that, well, you know, it's not as safe as you think it is, as in a Hal Holbrook story with um, with Fluffy, which is probably the best-looking creature in the movie, in Creepshow. The other anthologies that I'll recommend, of course, is Cat's Eye. Cat's Eye has James Wood in one story, and the, the linking part to it is that this cat kind of uh, goes through each the storyline. My favorite part of Cat's Eye is when uh, the cat is adopted by a family, and the cat's named General at this point. It's uh, a very young Drew Barrymore. And there's this little goblin that's in the house, and he keeps trying to steal the breath away of Drew Barrymore uh, and steal her power, her youth, her youthfulness, and things like that. And the cat comes to save the day. That is probably one of the best scenes, fight scenes I've seen uh, come through an anthology. The cat versus the goblin. That is worth checking out. And that's why I really love Cat's Eye. And then the other anthology to round out, Tales from the Dark Side. This one I just recently discovered. Uh, it used to be a little bit of a TV show. So I'm kind of disappointed that uh, even though the Tales from the Crypt did two movies, but they weren't anthologies, which... Tales from the Crypt really should have done an anthology. I think they really should have. But Tales from the Dark Side has uh, four, like four or five different stories in there that uh, they don't intertwine, but they're used to save a young boy's life. And uh, there's another one that's Dead Time Stories. Those are the anthologies you should check out. To me, anthologies are a great way to get a good horror fix without having to watch through a long, drawn-out, slow-burn horror movies. Now, there are some really bad ones out there. Uh, a few that I thought I'd really get hooked up in. And they just turned out to be the stories themselves. Uh, and again, I'm going to come back to it. The story didn't create the illusion, and the story just needed to be told better, I guess. But be careful on the anthologies. Definitely watch a trailer on them. But follow the ones that I said to watch. Trick or Treat, Creep Show, Cat's Eye, Tales from the Dark Side, 
Dead Time Stories, and even Creep Show 2 is not too bad, so you want to check that one out. Now, we are done with Dracula, so we are going to start a new feature tonight. We're not going to get too caught up into one, and this is what I promised you earlier when I said, I found this and I can't believe I had it kind of thing, and that's the three investigators. Now, if you don't know who the three investigators are, it's a book series similar to the Hardy Boys, meaning they're only similar because they're mysteries. But for three investigators, they got a slight degree of horror added into it. They got the supernatural element. And these books were presented by Alfred Hitchcock. So don't think that Alfred Hitchcock wrote these books. They're not. They're presented by Alfred Hitchcock. And we know Alfred Hitchcock is kind of a master of fear. And so these books are more for young adults. They're three teenagers who go around solving different mysteries. They've got their uh, little business card, the three investigators with three question marks on them. And this was a very good series. And as I said, I discovered this after I finished reading all the Hardy Boys I could get my hands on. I started reading the Hardy Boys when I was in elementary school. So I read everything that was in my school library then. And then I get to junior high. And I start reading all the Hardy Boys books they had. And when I finished, I was lost. I didn't have a new series to read. I mean, I was reading two to three books a week. And uh, so as I looked around, I came across three investigators. And from that point on, I have read every one of them that I could find. Now, here's something else about the three investigators that's kind of um, kind of tough to swallow. And that's the fact that every one of those books are out of print and people who have them and sell them think they're sitting on gold mines. So you're not going to go to Amazon and think you're going to get one for like 10 bucks like I can with a reprint Hardy Boys. No, if you want to go collect uh, three investigators, you're going to fork over a pretty penny. In fact, I've seen one episode or one book, the 35th book, was going around $350. And we are going to play the first of the three investigators, The Secret of Terror Castle. Hitchcock presents The Three Investigators in The Secret of Terror Castle Written by Robert Arthur and dramatized by Edward Kelsey My name is Alfred Hitchcock I am a teller of tales of terror Those of you who are easily frightened should listen no further those of you who think you are brave, now is the time to prove it. The story you are about to hear happened in the 1960s, before any of you were born. I was a not entirely unknown 
a director of thriller movies in Hollywood in the United States of America. One day, my secretary sent two boys into my office. They presented me with a printed card, which I read aloud. The three investigators. We investigate anything. Question mark, question mark, question mark. First investigator, Jupiter Jones. That's me, Mr. Hitchcock. Hmm. Second investigator, Peter Crenshaw. That's me. Records and research, Bob Andrews. Bob is not with us because he's doing research at the moment. He is somewhat handicapped in operations requiring athletic prowess, as he is suffering from the after-effects of a badly broken leg. However, as he works part-time at the library, he is eminently suitable as a researcher. Hmm, no doubt. But what are you doing here in my office? I do not require the services of one investigator, let alone three. Jupe thinks you do, Mr. Hitchcock. Jupe does, does he? The gate man has strict instructions not to allow strangers in to see me. Well, I can explain that, Mr. Hitchcock. I was fortunate enough to win a competition. Jupe is really very clever. You can tell from the way he speaks. He's got a great brain. And a great impudence. I'm sorry you should feel that way, Mr. Hitchcock. You see, the prize for being successful in the competition was the loan of a Rolls-Royce sedan automobile for 30 days. Well, not much use to you. You can't be old enough to drive. That is true, Mr. Hitchcock. But the Rolls came complete with its own chauffeur to drive us. And its own telephone. I'm impressed. And so was the man on the studio gate. He was so impressed to see us arrive in such a smart English auto, driven by a smart English chauffeur called Worthington, that he thought we must be related to you, Mr. Hitchcock, as you are such a smart English film director. So he let us in. I see. Well, now, you can both get back into your smart English auto and ask your smart English chauffeur to drive you smartly away. I'm very busy. We know that, Mr. Hitchcock, and we are here to help you. That is why we gave you our card. The three investigators, question mark, question mark, question mark. May I ask what the question marks are for? Uh, do they indicate a doubt in your own ability? No, sir. They are our trademark. They are symbolical of questions to be answered, of mysteries to be solved. And if we wish to indicate to each other where we have been, we leave a small chalk question mark, a different color for each of us. Most original. And the question marks on the card make people ask questions, like you did, sir, and that helps them remember us. I see. <clears throat> You are publicity-minded. A business cannot succeed if people don't know about it. A statement which cannot be disputed. But speaking of business, you have not yet stated yours. We want to find a haunted house for you, sir. A haunted house? What makes you think I want a haunted house? We understand you want to find an authentic haunted house to use in your next suspense picture, sir. The three investigators desire to assist you in the search. <laughs> I have people searching for a proper house at this moment all over America. I'm sure they'll find me the right house for my purposes. But if we could find you the right house here in California, it would be a lot simpler to make your picture here, sir. I'm sorry, my lad. It's out of the question. We don't want any money, sir. But all famous detectives have someone write up their cases for people to read. Sherlock Holmes, 
Ellery Queen, Hercule Poirot, all of them. I have deduced that that is how they become famous. In order to get potential customers to know about the three investigators, we will have our cases written up by the father of our other partner, Bob Andrews. He works for a newspaper, and he will turn our adventures into a play and record them. Well? Well, Mr. Hitchcock, I thought if you could just introduce our first case... You certainly do have a cheek. We're very well organized, Mr. Hitchcock. You've got a secret headquarters hidden away at Jeep's Uncle's scrapyard and... It won't be a secret long if you tell everyone, Pete. Mr. Hitchcock isn't everyone, Jupe. Well, thank you for that. And Pete is right, sir. We are well organized. We've built ourselves a very well-equipped headquarters out of an old trailer in my uncle's scrapyard. And we've had a telephone installed that we pay for by doing chores for my uncle. And for 30 days, we have the rolls for transport. All we need is our first case, Mr. Hitchcock, just so we can get started. Very well. I certainly admire your initiative. If you can come up with an interesting story, I'll introduce whatever you write about your case. Thank you, Mr. Hitchcock. Then you want us to investigate the haunted house situation for you? Oh, yes, I suppose so. I don't promise to use it, even if you find it. But investigate by all means. You won't regret it, Mr. Hitchcock. Bob Andrews is researching at this very moment. By the time we get back to our headquarters, he'll be ready to give us his first report on Terror Castle. Terror Castle is located in a narrow little canyon up above Hollywood called Black Canyon. It was originally called Terrell's Castle because it was built by a movie star named Stephen Terrell. He was a big star back in the silent film days before talking pictures were invented. He used to play in all kinds of scary pictures about vampires and werewolves, stuff like that. He built his house to look like the haunted castle, just like the ones in his pictures, and filled with weird things that came from the different pictures he'd acted in. Very promising, Bob. That depends on what you're promising. What became of this Stephen Terrell? He was known all over the world as a man with a million faces. Then talking pictures were invented, and people discovered he had a squeaky, high-pitched voice and lisped. Great, a monster who lifts in a squeaky voice. They must have laughed themselves right out of their seat. That's just what they did, and Stephen Teller had to stop making pictures. He sent away his servants, even sent away his best friend, his business manager, Mr. Jonathan Rex. He shut himself up in his castle and brooded. People began to forget about him. Then one day, a wrecked car was discovered. It had run off the road and crashed down over the cliffs, almost into the ocean. What did that have to do with Stephen Terrell? The police traced the license number and learned that the car belonged to Terrell. They didn't find his body, but that wasn't surprising. It would have washed away at high tide. Gee, do you think he drove off the cliff on purpose? Police weren't sure. But when they went to the castle, the door was wide open and they found a note which said, I copied it out. Here it is. Though the world will never see me alive again, my spirit will never leave this place. The castle will be forever accursed, and it was signed, Stephen Terrell. Wow! The more I hear about this place, the less I like it. On the contrary, it grows steadily more promising. Continue, Bob. Well, the police never found any trace of Terrell, but it turned out that he owed the bank a lot of money, so they sent some men out to collect Stephen Terrell's possessions. But they became very nervous, although they couldn't say why, and wouldn't stay. 
One real estate agent went there to spend the night, just to prove it was all imagination. He went out at midnight, so frightened, he ran all the way down the canyon. Gee! Go on. This is better than I hoped for. Several other people tried to spend the night. A movie star did it for the publicity. She ran out even before midnight. The teeth chattering so hard she could hardly talk. All she could do was whimper about a blue phantom and a fog of fear. Nothing else, huh? No headless horseman? No ghosts with clanking chains? No. If you'd let Bob finish, we'd be able to proceed faster. As far as I'm concerned, he is finished. I don't want to hear any more. Anything else, Bob? Well, just other incidents of the same kind: muffled screams from underneath the castle, a misty figure walking up the stairs. A lot of people reported having heard weird music come from the ruined pipe organ in the music room, and several actually saw a ghostly figure, a sort of shimmery blue blob, playing the organ. They named it the Blue Phantom. No train will go within a mile of the place. I'm not surprised. You couldn't hire me to go there. Nevertheless, Pete, we are going there. You and I tonight. <laughs> Is this it, Worthington? I fear we can proceed no further in the rolls, Master Jones. This rockfall bars our passage, but it is my impression that the castle should be just around that turning ahead. Thank you, Worthington. Come on, Pete. We'll walk the rest of the way. Have you got the tape recorder? If I have to use it, all you'll hear will be the sound of chattering teeth. We'll be back in an hour, Worthington. If we're lucky. Gee, it looks scary. I think we ought to come by daylight, Duke, so we can find our way around. Nothing happens here in the daytime. It's only at night that this place scares people out of their wits. I don't want to be scared out of my wits. I'm half that way already. So am I. I feel as if I'd swallowed some butterflies. Then let's go back. We've done enough for one night. We had to go back to headquarters and make some more plans. I've already made my plans. My plans are to stay in Terror Castle for one hour tonight. Come on. What's that? Just a jackrabbit. We frightened it. We frightened it? What do you think it did to me? <laughs> Forward, Pete. Here we are. The entrance to Terror Castle. Wow! There's a bat round my head. Bats only eat insects. They never eat people. Maybe this one wants a change of diet. Why take chances? Oh, stop kidding, Pete. Here's the door. We just have to walk through it. I wish I could get my legs to believe that. They think we ought to go back. Well, so do mine. But my legs take orders from me. Come on. Wait. Do you hear spooky music? Probably just imagination. What if it was the ruined pipe organ being played by the Blue Phantom? Then we certainly want to hear it. Let's enter. We're here. This is the main hall. We'll stay one hour, then we'll leave. 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 
Did you hear that? The Phantom told us to leave. Wait. 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 As I thought. Merely an echo. And it only works when you stand in the exact middle of the hallway. The walls are circular. Mr. Terrell built it this way specially. He called it the echo room. I was just kidding. I knew it was an echo all along. <laughs> did I do that? You did. But please, don't do it again. I won't. Shine your flashlight on the wall over there. That's right. Gee, it's covered with pictures. Yes. They all appear to be of the same man wearing different costumes. I suppose they're all pictures of Stephen Terrell playing different roles from his films. I guess so. Gee, Whiskers. What is it, Pete? That picture of the one-eyed pirate. That one eye is real. It's looking at us. Where? There, look. No. It's just a painted eye like all the others. I guess I was wrong, but I certainly thought I saw it blink. Hey, you feel what I feel? I... I feel very cold. Cold spots are frequently found in haunted houses. And this one is haunted. I feel a cold draft as if a whole parade of ghosts were rushing by. I've got goose flesh. I'm scared. Look. A mist forming in the air. It's a ghost. It's terrorizing. Come on. Back to the car. Run. Run. Here you are, Master Jones. Back home at your uncle's scrapyard. Thank you, Worthington. Yes, thank you for getting us away from Terror Castle. Better luck next time, Master Jones. I must say, I enjoy this kind of assignment. It's quite a change from driving for fat bankers and rich old ladies. <laughs> Good night, Master Jones. Right. Let's get over to our headquarters. Bob will be waiting for us. What was it that happened exactly, Pete? What made you run from Terra Castle tonight? I don't know exactly. First I began to feel uneasy. After a while I was feeling extremely nervous. All of a sudden, the extreme nervousness became sheer terror, and I wanted to run. Hmm. Your experience was exactly the same as mine. We actually saw and heard nothing to frighten us, yet we felt frightened. The question is why? What do you mean, why? Any old deserted house is frightening, and the place is so scary it would frighten spooks. Perhaps that is the answer. We must visit Terra Castle again and... The telephone! Who could call us? No one knows our number. We haven't had it long enough to be listed in the telephone book. Hadn't we better answer it? Yeah. Hello? 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 No one there. Must have been a wrong number. Hello? Hello? Stay away. Stay 
I've been thinking about that phone call we had last night. It seems to me we have a problem. In fact, we have two problems. I can tell you how to solve our problems. Just pick up that phone and call Mr. Hitchcock and tell him we've decided not to find a haunted house for him. Tell him we break out into lumps of goose flesh whenever we go near one. Tell him our legs go all wobbly and start running on their own accord. I will ignore those remarks, Pete. While Bob is busy at the library, we will endeavor to solve our problems. First, we must determine who made that phone call last night. Not who. What? Was it a phantom or a spook or werewolf? Or just a disembodied spirit? Disembodied spirits are not known to use telephones. That was in the old days. Why shouldn't they change with the times and be modern, too? That voice last night didn't sound like a human voice to me. I agree. The whole problem is made more perplexing by the fact that, except for us in Worthington, not a living soul knew of our visit to Terror Castle last night. But what about souls who aren't living? If Terror Castle is actually haunted, we wish to prove it. And if Stephen Terrell is the one who put a curse on the castle, then presumably it's his ghost haunting the place now. That sounds reasonable. Our first line of action, then, is to locate someone who knew Stephen Terrell in the days when he was a silent picture star and who can tell us more about him. But that was a long time ago. Who'd we find? Our best bet would be Mr. Terrell's business manager, the Whisperer. The Whisperer? What kind of name is that? That was his nickname. His real name was Jonathan Rex. Here's a picture of him and Stephen Terrell that Bob copied for us at the library. Well, so that was what Stephen Terrell looked like? He didn't have to do any acting to scare people. With that terrible scar and a bald head and those eyes, they would freeze a guy in his tracks. You're looking at the wrong one. Mr. Terrell is the smaller man, the one who looks so friendly and harmless. Him? He's the one who played all those ferocious monsters? The nice-looking guy? Well, apparently, off the motion picture set, Stephen Terrell was so shy because of his lisp, he could hardly talk to people. So he hired the Whisperer to handle all his business affairs. The Whisperer had no trouble getting people to agree to the terms he desired. I'll bet he didn't. He looks as if he would draw a knife on a person if anyone said no. If we can locate him, I'm sure he can tell us all we need to know. Look him up in the telephone books, Pete, while I phone for Worthington and the Rolls. This is the mountain road that leads to Mr. Jonathan Rex's residence, Master Jones. Good work, Worthington. Thank you, sir. It's lucky for us that Jonathan Rex still lives in the neighborhood. Yes. And I have an idea. Uh, Worthington. Sir. I believe this road will pass within a mile of the entrance of Black Canyon and Terror Castle. That is so, Master Jones. Then let's pay a quick visit to Black Canyon on the way. There's something I want to ascertain. There's Terra Castle again. To think we went into that place after dark. Wow. And came out in rather a hurry. You can say that again. As a matter of fact, we're going back in again. Right now. And have a look around by daylight. Look out! What is it? Up there! We're going down the side of the mountain towards us! A gigantic boulder! It'll crush us! Wait! Stand still! It'll miss us by some yards. Gee, Whiskers, if that boulder had hit us, Terror Castle would have had some new ghosts tonight. Look! 
There's someone up on that slope, hiding behind the bushes. I'll bet he rolled that stone down on us. If he did, we'll teach him better manners. Come on, Jupe. Let's get him. Can you still see him, Pete? No. He must be hiding. Look, above us. The whole side of the canyon is coming down on top of us. Quick, get into this crevice in the rock. until the dust settles. Don't worry about the air. This crevice must go a long way into the hillside, so there's plenty of air in here for now. But our exit appears to be effectively barricaded. Even at a time like this, you use long words? Why don't you just say we can't get out? We're stuck. I won't say we can't get out, because that fact remains to be proved. Look up there. You can see daylight through that tiny hole. We'll never get out through there. Not until we make the hole bigger. And fortunately, someone has been in this crevice before us and left a stick behind. If I poke hard enough with it, I should be able to disturb a rock. There. The hole is bigger. A little more poking, and the hole will be big enough for us to get through. You're a genius. Please. I simply endeavor to exercise my native intelligence to its fullest ability. Now help me enlarge this hole so that we can get out and return to Worthington and the Rolls and continue our journey to the home of Mr. Jonathan Rex. We've reached the end of the road, Master Jones. But I do not see any habitation. There's a mailbox. It says Rex, 915. The house must be around here somewhere. There are some rocky steps going up the hillside. They must lead to Jonathan Rex's house. Stay here, Worthington. Sir? We'll go and visit with the Whisperer. side of the house. Cages of them. And look there. A man with a bald head. And a terrible scar. He's got an axe in his hand. It's razor sharp. Stand right where you are. Don't move a step. Do you hear? He's coming towards us. Stand absolutely still, boys. Don't move if you value your lives. Gee, what do we do? He's going to throw the axe. Welcome 
to Frightening Tales. I'm the Ghoul Man, and Tommy is riding shotgun on this episode of Frightening Tales, where we're talking all things horror movies, or at least what's our favorite horror movies and what we're calling Horror 101. I hope you're getting hooked on horror if you weren't already there. And if you hadn't seen some of these movies, I hope you decide to go watch them after my show. Don't go and watch them now. How rude of you if you think you're going to go do that now. But anyway... We're going to move into our little section here of my two favorite movies, The Monster Squad and Ghostbusters. And we're going to talk about why I like both of them. Now, both movies are kind of a pop culture, pop icon things, because you could say lines like, back off, man, I'm a scientist, and people know what you're saying. Or you could say, kick him in the nards, kick him in the nards, Wolfman doesn't have nards. Kick him, Wolfman's got nards. Now, those are the great movies, and so they've got a little bit of the pop, pop they have a little bit more of the pop culture into them, and it's through Monster Squad that I realized that not a few people, or quite a few people don't know this movie, especially when I said Duncan Rhaegar plays the best Dracula I have ever seen. I still stand by that comment and my statement because he just totally owned it, especially when Phoebe screamed. Or when you got to refilm the scene because the scream was too loud. Now the Monster Squad is a group of four teenagers that are kind of horror movie fans, sort of like us, right, Tommy? Oh yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Now they have their own little clubhouse. I'm kind of envious because I always wanted a treehouse like they have in this movie. Uh, this is a nice treehouse. Uh, their their dad put in a lot of work for supposedly for. A cop dad who uh, doesn't spend enough time with his family. Because that's kind of the sticking point in the movie. Is that the father and the mother are not getting along. Because the father is a cop. Now there's some uh, funny stuff that goes on throughout the movie. First off, when you've discovered the two boys. One's wearing a Stephen King shirt. And they're in the principal's office. Because they were drawing monsters instead of listening to their science teacher. Then along the line, the mom finds this journal for Van Helsing, and since she knows her son is such a horror buff, she buys this book for him, and that starts off the whole thing. Well, at least for this segment. It actually opens up with Van Helsing versus Dracula. Uh, the credits are great because it opens up says, back in this time, back in this time, you know, when the amulet was powerful, they were there to fight Dracula but they screwed up. That was hilarious. You knew you were going to get into a great movie. Now, this movie is directed by Fred Decker. If you don't know who Fred Decker is, think Lethal Weapon. You're welcome. This movie was targeted to be a teen movie. They didn't want this movie to be, a, oh, a kid's horror movie. They wanted to get the kids and the teens into it, and it turned out that many adults like it. Now, the charming points to the movie is the fact that we bring in universal-like monsters. Now, they couldn't use the Universal Monsters because they're subject to copyright, at least in the appearance of Dracula, the appearance of Frankenstein, the Wolfman, and the Gilman and the Mummy. So they had to get a little creative, and that's where Stan Winston comes in, and he just blows it out of the park. It, um, it brings it home, and these monsters look good. In fact, I think they look a little, other than Frankenstein, I think they look a little better than the Universal creatures that we get. So there, there, there's the tie that the Universal Monsters are the gateway to horror and they kind of bridge and are stepping stones to all, everything else that we have. 
Now, I'm not going to spoil all this movie because you can watch it real quick. There, there is a joke inside Monster Squad about killing a villain like Freddy multiple times. Like, oh, they killed him with, uh, they killed him in the last movie. How did they bring him back this time? So there, there's that little joke in there. And then there's uh, the, the Eugene who calls the army who just shows up out of nowhere. I can't believe an army would believe a handwritten note in crayon that monsters were attacking their town and that they would show up. In a very three investigator-ish kind of way, when the army general asks, well, what, who took care of the monsters? And they go, we did. And who are you? We're the monster squad. And he hands them the card. So that's where all the charm for monster club comes from, but the a monster squad that's, but the scene that everybody knows, and it's actually the title of the documentary for monster squads called Wolfman's got nards. I mean, I've had scenes or I've had people call me up. Like, hey, Hey, what was that movie where a uh, wolfman gets kicked in the nards? I, you know, that that's how people remember this movie. And you really should check out the movie. You should check out the documentary about Wolfman's Got Nards. There's a few little things that, you know, I'm like, man, that, that, why, why'd you have to go there? You didn't have to do that with the documentary. We, but overall, it is a cult classic movie. Uh, hard to find on DVD. Even harder to find streaming. Now, I said that it's hard to find on streaming. If you got Pluto TV or Tubi or uh, even Roku, tends they, they, they tend to have it off and on. So you can find it. Last time I watched it was on Pluto TV. So it is out there to see. You just got to do a little digging. But if you're looking for it on DVD or Blu-ray, yeah, good luck. Now I'm going to talk about my other favorite movie, and that is Ghostbusters. We all know Ghostbusters. We've got a new movie in the making. And uh, last week I teased that they have a new poster out what you see the ghost emblem and it's covered in ice and there's really been no revelation on it. I haven't seen too many people just um, give their theories yet, but they're all excited that uh, we, we got something in the possible Christmas release and we're, we're super excited for it. Now Ghostbusters, we've got Ghostbusters. You've got like five different movies right now. You got or with the fifth one in the in the process, you got the Ghostbusters one, which is by far the the best one. Uh, the battle goes, or you see them start. You got the great scenes. Back off, man! I'm a scientist. Or don't cross the streams. Or are you a god? If someone asks, are you a god? You say yes. I mean, you got great lines like that. And then Ghostbusters two comes out five years later, and that one I was a little more disappointed with. I was not too happy with Vigo. I didn't really like the whole "let's bring the Statue of Liberty and walk it to the museum to break the slime," the the negatively charged slime. Um, best scene I think out of uh, Ghostbusters two is the Cheech Marin scene when when the, all the ghosts are coming back and they say, "Look, the Titanic has arrived," and he goes, Cheech goes. Better late than never. But still, I, I, I like Ghostbusters 2, but if I'm going to pick between the ones that I watch the most, or if you look at my watch history, I have watched Ghostbusters 1 more than anything. Now, we got the all-female Ghostbusters, <clears throat> and we got the all-female Ghostbusters, which a lot of people absolutely hate. I'm not one of those. I like it. I think it was clever. I thought it was uh, a good little alternate universe version of Ghostbusters and uh, the fact that it was all girls and some people want to claim, oh, it was just woke. 
eh, toss that one out the window because they had fun with Chris Hemsworth. They, they did a lot of things that you would have seen in eighties movies anyway. And Chris Hemsworth looked like he had a lot of fun making the movie, especially when you watch the end credit scenes and he's dancing and making all the people that he has under mind control dance. That was hilarious. Um, the only problem I do have with the girl Ghostbuster is Holtzman. I like the character, but as an actor, I, I notice she acts the same way in every movie. So, and it's not cardboardish. It's just creepy, awkward. Every movie is her thing. Even if this movie doesn't call for that, she just seems to be that way. Now as Holtzman, it works fine in a Ghostbusters movie. And I, I guess like said a lot of people blast it. They hate it. But most of us Ghostbuster fans or ghost heads, we absolutely like it. We love it. And then bring on Ghostbuster Afterlife. This was the reaction to the uh, backlash of the all-girls Ghostbusters. So we return to the roots of Ghostbusters. And we explore a small town out of Oklahoma or someplace like that where the metal was mined to build the, the uh, apartment in the first Ghostbusters. Now, there's a lot of great characters in Fee with Phoebe, Podcast, Finn Wolfhard as, um, oh man, drawing a blank on the last character, so we, we'll, we won't worry about that right now. But you see them as these kids whose father had abandoned, or their grandfather had abandoned their mother. And that, that's kind of the slow point that when you rewatch Afterlife that you start to get a little annoyed with is the, oh, my dad abandoned me. I got dad issues. Blah, 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 blah. My dad. It, it, that one does get old after you watch it a few more times. So that that's almost the point of you need to fast forward through those scenes. But it's, overall, it's still a great, great movie. It's uh, one of the better Ghostbusters movies. And uh, as when you're ranking them, it goes Ghostbusters 1, Afterlife 2, then the all-girls Ghostbusters. And Phoebe, and then you discover that they're like the grandchildren of Egon. And here's another thing that uh, they had to go this way because uh, Egon abandoning his daughter is kind of out of character if you were to uh, look at it that way. But they kind of had to go with that way since Harold Ramis died. So you had to do like Egon abandons everybody. The Ghostbusters, he goes crazy because he sees the end of the world and nobody will believe him. Well, first off, Ray would have believed Egon. He would have believed anything that he would say because those two were buddy buddies. Those two were very similar in thought. Pete, now he would have been more skeptical because that's what he was. He's the skeptic. And Winston, of course, he would have gone along with it because he knows because he's seen things that will turn you white. There, there's some things out of character for Egon. And in the debate online about Ghostbusters Afterlife is when did Egon have his child? And it seems to be the popular consensus that it was before he became a Ghostbuster. So that's kind of like weird to think. Well, that wraps up my two favorite all-time movies, which are Ghostbusters and the Monster Squad. We're going to go ahead and give you the last half of the three investigators, The Secret of Terror Castle, here on Frightening Tales. Jake, he wants to kill us. He's throwing the axe at us. I'm glad of that. Come on, Juke, run! It's all right, Pete. There was a snake in the grass behind you, boys. I don't know whether it was a rattler or not. I tried to get it with the axe, but I hurried too much. Would you like to join me for 
A lemonade? We'd be glad to, Mr. X. I've been cutting the brush along the hill. Dry brush is a bad fire hazard, but it's hot work. A lemonade is all ready. Let me pour you a glass. Thank you, Mr. Rex. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I raise parakeets for a living, as you may have noticed. Well, we can certainly hear. Yes, they are rather noisy. Will you excuse me for a moment? Of course, sir. Well, Pete, what do you think of Mr. Rex? Why? He seems pretty nice. I mean, after you get used to his voice. Yes, he's very friendly. I wonder why he said he was cutting brush with the axe. However, his hands and arms were quite clean. They would have had small twigs and bark on them if he'd really been cutting dry brush. But why would he bother to make up a story for two kids he's never seen before? I don't know. But if he'd been cutting brush for any length of time, how could he have a pitcher of lemonade with the ice hardly melted at all standing in here now? Shh! He's coming back. I've just been to put on this scarf around my neck. It bothers some people to see my scar, so I cover it when I have company. It's a relic of a little scrape I got into in the Malay archipelago many years ago. But tell me, how do you happen to be calling on me? Our card, Mister X. Hmm. The three investigators, eh? And what are you investigating? We'd like to ask you some questions about Stephen Terrell. What is your interest in my old friend? We wondered if Mr. Terrell was the kind of man who would become a vindictive spirit, bent on haunting his former home to keep people out of it forever. A very good question. Let me answer it this way: My friend Stephen, though in his movie roles he played phantoms and monsters, pirates and weird creatures. Was really very shy and gentle. That was why he needed me for his business manager. I had a way with people. They didn't like to argue with me. You understand? Yes, sir. That allowed Steve to devote himself to his acting. He enjoyed being able to thrill and scare audiences. When his poor speaking voice made his final picture such a laughing matter, it broke his heart. That was one thing he couldn't face: being laughed at. Yes, sir. I know how he felt. I hate being laughed at too. Exactly. For weeks after the picture was released, Steve wouldn't leave his home. He sent the servants away. I did all the shopping. The reports kept coming in that audiences shrieked with laughter everywhere the picture was shown. Finally, he ordered me to obtain all the prints of his old pictures that were in existence. He was determined that no one would ever see them again. I managed to get them and brought them to him, but it took all his money, and I had to tell him that the bank which financed the building of his home. Threatened to take the castle away from him. We were alone in the main room of the castle. He looked at me with burning eyes. 
They will never get me to go, he said. No matter what happens to my body, my spirit will never leave this building. Golly, that certainly sounds as if he was planning to go into the haunting profession. Yes. Yet, Mr. Rex, you say Mr. Terrell was a gentle individual. Well, such a person would hardly turn into a malevolent spirit capable of inspiring unreasoning terror in everyone who entered the castle. That's true, my boy, but you see the unseen force that causes the sense of terror in everybody may not be the spirit of my old friend. It may be one of the other much more sinister spirits that I strongly suspect now manifest themselves there. Other more sinister spirits? Oh, yes. When Stephen Terrell built the castle... He sent all over the world for materials from various buildings supposed to be haunted. From Japan, he obtained timbers of an ancient, ghost-ridden temple where a noble family had been wiped out in an earthquake. Then he brought material from a ruined mansion in England where a beautiful girl had hanged herself rather than marry a man her father had picked out for her. And he imported stones from a castle on the Rhine, supposedly haunted by the ghost of a mad musician who was imprisoned in the cellars for playing music his lord did not like. After the musician's death, the tune which brought about his imprisonment was often heard coming from the locked music room of the castle. Gosh, if all those big characters are wandering around Turret Castle now... No wonder it's so hard to live in. I cannot swear that Terror Castle is haunted by my old friend or anyone else. But personally, I would not enter that front door and spend a night there now for ten thousand dollars. <laughs> Since you and Pete interviewed Mr. Rex, when are we going to have a conference about it? As soon as we can, Bob. But my aunt has been keeping us so hard at work here in the scrapyard, we just haven't had a moment to spare. Things seem to be easing off a little now, Jupe. Well, that is true, Pete. And as we are unobserved at the moment, perhaps we could have a quick meeting here in the yard before Aunt Matilda announces lunch. Good idea, Jupe. We could sit on the hood of this old car... We can easily get on with something if anybody comes. Right. Now, the first subject to discuss is the mysterious telephone call we received immediately after our first visit to Terror Castle. Until I learn otherwise, I shall refuse to believe that disembodied phantoms can use telephones. Well, okay. What's next? The mysterious person who rolled the rocks down at you? Yes. What about him? He's one guy I'd like to get my hands on. It may have been somebody wandering in the canyon who started the rocks rolling by accident. He had an awfully good aim for someone who didn't mean it. Well, he must remain an enigma until further facts emerge. I am thinking now of the untruths which Mr. Rex told us when Pete and I visited him. Why did he say he was cutting dry brush when it was obvious that he wasn't? And why did he have a pitcher of fresh lemonade ready as if he was expecting us? Whiskers! The further we go, the more mysteries there are. Look out. There's someone coming over here. It's an old gypsy woman. Probably got some junk to sell. I have a message 
Jupiter and Jim. I am he. What's the message? Three times I have seen a warning for you in the cards. You are to avoid the letters T.C. or anybody or anything with the initials T.C. You are in terrible danger. Take notice of the gypsy's warning. Avoid T.C. Avoid T.C. Hey, come back. What do you mean? Keep away from T.C. Hey. It's all right, Pete. Let her go. T C Terra Castle. Somebody or something doesn't want us fooling around Terra Castle. First, we get a weird warning over the telephone. Then this something uses the fortune teller's cards to send us another warning. I think Mr. Something means it. I vote we stay away from Terra Castle. Is warned. All in favor? Vote aye. 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 That makes a majority vote. Is it not apparent to you that these warnings add a new mystery to the case? How do you mean? No one else who investigated Terra Castle received any warnings. This leads me to believe that we are closer to the solution of the mystery of the strange terror that pervades it than we realize. I've reached certain conclusions which must be tested, and we have to work swiftly to report to Mr. Hitchcock on time. Therefore, you must both get permission to stay out late tonight. For tonight, we make our final assault upon the secret of Terror Castle. Well, here we are again, Pete. Terror Castle. Open the door. Why does it always have to be us? What about Bob and Worthington sitting comfortably in rolls back there? They're our backup team. Now come on, open the door. It won't. It's jammed. Hmm. I feel sure we can affect an entrance elsewhere. Suppose we try one of those French windows down there. Come on. We're in luck. This window isn't shut properly. In we go. It's the dining room. There seem to be several doors to the rest of the house. I wonder which we should take. As far as I'm concerned. Ah! What is it, Pete? It's the ghost of a woman with a rope around her neck. Oh, the one Mr. Rex told us about. What do we do? When I say now, shine your flashlight on her, and I'll shine mine too. Now. She's vanished. Well, there's nothing there. A mirror? And the ghost must be behind us. She's not there now. She's gone, and I'm going too. Wait. A ghost can't reflect in a mirror. Well, this one did. Come on, let's go. We've proved the house is haunted. Let's go and tell Mr. Hitchcock now. Not yet. I want to examine this mirror. Seems solid enough. Well, look at that—a secret door leading to a secret passage. Come on, we must discover where it leads. We're locked in. 
mind, Pete. We don't want to go back the way we've come. Don't we? Of course not. We're investigators, aren't we? Listen to that. The blue phantom plays again. The music seems to come out of the stone wall. I'd say we are probably directly behind the ruined pipe organ in the projection room. You mean the blue phantom is on the other side of that wall? I hope so. After all, the whole purpose of this expedition is to try to catch the phantom. Suppose he catches us first. That's what worries me. According to all available records, the blue phantom has never harmed anyone. I've come to some conclusions, case which I've kept to myself in order to verify them. I think we will soon find out if I'm correct or not. But suppose you're wrong, and the blue phantom decides he wants us to join his gang of spooks. What then? Then I'll admit I was wrong. Look at the mist coming out of the floor, out of the walls, everywhere. Fog of fear, the ultimate manifestation of Terror Castle. Now let us try to catch the blue phantom while he thinks we are paralyzed with fear. I am paralyzed with fear. I can't make my legs move. The time has come, Pete, to tell you what I've deduced. Terra Castle is really haunted. That's what I've been telling you all along. Let me finish. Really haunted, but not by a ghost. It is haunted by a man who is very much alive. In fact, according to my deductions, the Phantom of Terra Castle is Mr. Stephen Terrell, the supposedly dead movie star himself. What? You mean alive and living here all these years? Exactly, a living ghost. Scaring people away from his home so that he will not lose it. Does that make you feel better? It sure does. Now, there appears to be a door in a passage here. It's my belief that if we go through it, we shall find Mr. Stephen Terrell. Mr. Terrell. Mr. Stephen Terrell. Are you here, Mr. Terrell? It's all right, Mr. Terrell. We don't mean you any harm. Ah! What is it, Juke? What's happening? Ah! I'm caught in a net. I, I can't move. Neither could I. What's going on? You small fools. Why did you not heed my warning? It's the old gypsy woman who came to the scrapyard. Why could you not be sensible and stay away like the others? Now we must take care of you. Who are you? We can tell you because you will never be able to tell anyone else. <laughs> we are smugglers of jewels from the Orient. This is our headquarters. It is unfortunate for you that you have discovered it. What shall we do with them? Lock them in the dungeon and throw away the key. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you think we should go and see what has happened to Jupe and Pete? They've been gone an awful long time. Not so long as all that, Master Andrews. Master Jones gave me very strict instructions as to how long I was to wait before coming to his aid, if necessary. The time has not yet expired. I hope Jupe and Pete haven't expired. That is a joke, I take it, Master. Master Jones is much too resourceful a character to allow anything unfortunate to occur. I hope you are right, Warrington. 
feeling, Pete? I can't move. I'm all tied up. Me too. What are we going to do, Jupe? We'll never get out of this dungeon. The smugglers will never allow us to escape. Oh, don't worry, Pete. If my estimation of the passage of time is correct, help should be with us very shortly. I have great faith in the abilities of Bob and our English chauffeur, Worthington. But how will they know where to find us? Oh, gosh! The smugglers are coming back. Ah, is that you, Master Pen? Is Master Jones with you? I am, Worthington. Are you both all right? We are now, Bob. Will you allow me to sever the bonds that bind you, Master Jones? With pleasure, Worthington. Hmm. There. And there. Oh. oh, thank you, Worthington. That's better. And now you, Master Crenshaw. There. And there. Worthington. I am sorry that our appearance on the scene was a little delayed. We were able to follow your secret signs, but we took a wrong turning, and we were attacked by enormous birds. Birds? Yes, sir. Not exactly enormous. Um, parakeets, I say they were. Parakeets? I got it! How did you come to be in such a predicament, sir? We noticed a Chinese gentleman hurrying along a tunnel. Was he in any way responsible? He certainly was. We were looking for... We'll explain later. Take us to where you were attacked by the birds. Certainly, sir. Follow me. You can hear the birds now. Be careful. They're dangerous, Bob. Have you heard that sound before, Pete? Yes. I think I have. But where? You'll know soon. There appears to be a wood door ahead, sir. And it's open. Into the tunnel. Come on. Where are we? We're trapped. We're in a cage. Yeah, we're in a cage, all right. But we're not trapped. You recognize where we are, Pete? Yeah. We're inside the big cage where Mr. Rex raises his parakeets. Exactly. Terra Castle must lie parallel to Mr. Rex's house, with only a few hundred feet of rocky ridge separating them. The two houses are connected by a secret tunnel. I think we should pay a call on Mr. Rex. Okay, Pete. Mr. Rex's front doorbell. Right, you... Do you think Mr. Rex has anything to do with the haunting of Terra Castle? We shall soon find out. Well, what is it? We'd like to talk with you, Mr. Rex. And supposing I do not wish to be bothered, boy? In that case, we shall have to call the authorities to investigate. Oh, no need for that. Come in. Come in. Thank you, Mr. Rex. This is my old friend, Charles Grant. How are you? Charlie, these are the boys who have been investigating Terra Castle. Well, boys, have you found the ghosts yet? Yes. We have solved the secret of the castle. Have we? Have. Indeed. Is the secret. You two men are the ghosts who've been haunting the castle and scaring people away. And just a short while ago, you tied up Pete Crenshaw and me and left us in the dungeon under the castle. That's a very serious accusation, boy. And I'll wager you can't prove it. Look at the tips of your shoes. 
I chalked them with our secret mark while you were standing beside me, tying me up. But we were tied up by the old gypsy woman and the old Chinese... Both these men were connected with the film industry. They're masters of disguise. Uh, he's right. We were acting part of an imaginary gang of smugglers to give you boys a real scare. But I don't want you to think we actually intended to harm you. I was on my way back to untie you when your friends got... We're not murderers nor smugglers either. We're just ghosts. Uh, but I am a murderer. I killed Stephen Terrell. Oh, that's right. You did away with him, but <laughs> that hardly counts. The police may think otherwise. Lads, I think we had better go and summon the authorities. No, wait. Give me a moment and I'll let you talk to Stephen Terrell himself. You mean, talk to his ghost? Exactly. Talk to his ghost. He will explain to you why I killed him. Quick! Stop him! He's trying to escape! No, he's not. Don't worry. He won't. Minute. There is something he has. Good evening. I am Stephen Terrell. You wanted to see me. He really is Stephen Terrell. I get it. Mr. Terrell, you are also Jonathan Rex, the Whisperer, are you not? That is so. You have guessed my secret. When I attached this plastic scar to my throat, took off my wig and put on elevator shoes, I stopped being Stephen Terrell. I reduced my voice to a sinister whisper and became that frightening individual known as the Whisperer. I faked my own death, and I'd been trying to frighten people away from Terror Castle until, as Mipex, I could raise enough money reading my parakeets to buy back the castle from the bank. I had almost succeeded, but I reckoned without the persistence of you boys. It was all quite harmless, and no one ever got hurt. No one got hurt? We almost got killed by that rockfall. Yeah, well, uh, th that was an accident. I'm very sorry about that. Uh, I dislodged the rocks as I was uh, watching your movements. Charlie Grant is my lookout. Just at the entrance to Black Canyon, there's a small bungalow, barely visible. Charlie lived there. Whenever he sees anyone enter the canyon, he telephones me, and I hurry through the tunnel to be ready for them. He used to be my film makeup man. And he was the old gypsy woman who warned us... How did you know who we are? I heard about you winning the Rolls Royce in the papers. It's an easy car to recognize. Quite so, sir. But how did you manage to make Terra Castle seem to be haunted? I learned many tricks and special effects when I worked in movies. Trade secrets, but not difficult if you know how. Well, now you know the whole story. What are you going to do? Mr. Terrell... Do you still have the copies of all the wonderful scary films you made which no one has seen for many years? I do. I looked after them very carefully. Then I have an idea how you can get your castle back and still go on entertaining people by scaring them. How? Turn the castle into a so haunted cinema to show your old film. Show my old... You know, that might work. I'm sure it would. But now... We must prepare our report for Mr. Hitchcock. When the boys reported back to me, I had to tell them I had changed my plans. 
and no longer required a haunted house. However, I have kept my word and introduced the story of their adventures. And, what is more, I suggested another mystery for them to solve, which I shall also introduce. The mystery of the stuttering parrot. Listen to that, if you dare. Welcome back to Frightening Tales. This will conclude tonight's episode of Frightening Tales. Join us next week 